I crashed my drone today. Wait, I didn't realize you still used your drone ever. This was the first time I used it in probably a year. Well, that'll teach you. Yeah. The first time I've ever had a crash also. Yeah, what'd you do? Yeah, I was... So our, our neighbors across the street have are having an issue with some critters getting into their like attic space and they wanted to they i I offered to help them look like look around this area around their roof that's hard to see from the ground and i said hey you know if you want i I have a flying camera we can (laughs) we can look at it we can inspect it really nicely and and we can try to see because they were trying to figure out like where they might be coming in from if there's anything we can spot um so we waited for a time when it was not very crowded because i don't want to be a jerk and uh Flew it up there, and my skills have not atrophied too badly, um, with one minor exception that I crashed it. But so, (laughs) (laughs) other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you like the plane? Right. Yes. Besides that, um, I was flying around like this this part of their roof that sticks up, and I was trying to get like down low so I could see under the eave. So it requires like you know flying low and close, and then looking up from the drone. You know, I, I gave a small haircut to to a nearby plant, and that's fine. That, yep. it, it survived that, and the whole time it's beeping like crazy because I'm getting very close. It, it has like the proximity sensors that have a radius of something like I think four to eight feet. It, it's it's pretty far that it senses, and so it's pretty hard to fly close to anything without it freaking out. Um, but I try to look and peer under an eave, and I move it over a little bit, and it gets close to a different section of the roof that is sloped. I didn't crash into that roof segment because I knew it was there, but I got close enough to it that the drone said, landing, (laughs) because it thought that I had gotten so close to a surface that I was intending to land it on that surface. Now, once it says landing, no matter how hard you push up on that stick, it will land. (laughs) No, there's a way. I honestly don't remember off the top of my head. I think there's a way to cancel it. You have to like point both sticks to the upper or you, you, you go a diagonally in on both sticks or maybe a diagonally out on both sticks. I can't remember what it is. But I think there is a way to cancel it. But yes, I in the heat of the moment, I probably would have ended up landing the thing by accident as well. Yeah, and I was only a couple of feet above this segment. There was like I knew I was getting close to it. That was the point. I could see it in my line of sight from across the street. So like you know, I knew it was fine. But when it said landing, and it proceeded to try to land on a very sloped section of the roof, it failed to correctly land and rolled down the roof and got snagged in the gutter. Oh no. Now, it's the summertime. It's, you know, two-story roof, and there's not super easy access to it, but they had, like, a deck on one side, so I'm like, all right, let me see if I can crawl up there. They had a ladder, they had a deck, I'm like, all right, so I crawl up on the roof, but it's on the other side of the roof from where the ladder could access. So, all right, so I go, I, like, crawl across the roof. Did you have, did you have gloves on? I didn't have, I was wearing shorts and a short sleeve t-shirt. Great, great for crawling on hot roofs. Great, yeah. <laughs> I'm covered in sunscreen and sweat because it's July and it's very hot and I, I've had a lot of sunscreen on. So I'm like greasy <laughs> and, and hot and I'm crawling well, That's because you learned that Tiff likes that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm crawling Grease around. Me up, woman. Crawling around on this oh incredibly gosh. hot roof. <laughs> Eventually, I, I get like across the roof. I'm, I like cut, cut up my elbows and knees a little bit from all the, the tar shingles, but I couldn't get close enough to it because that face of the roof was super hot and i touched it for a second i'm like you know what i can't safely do that and you were thinking you know if john was here he would have told me to wear gloves before i went up on that roof (laughs) (laughs) yeah right so i like shimmy back over to the ladder get myself safely down (laughs) 
and then proceed over the next like half hour with my neighbor to devise d- various schemes because one of its little arms was sticking out like out from the gutter from so you could see it from the <laughs> yep. bottom why didn't you just go get gloves and jeans once i went up there the first time I'm like you know what this might be a bad idea <laughs> you just decided this is not for you rooms are not for you uh, well yeah I mean, it was it was kind of hazardous. Like I, once I was off the roof, I'm like, you know what? That was a stupid idea. I shouldn't go back there. That was not safe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we proceeded over the, over the following half hour to like throw ropes at it, trying to like lasso oh it to pull it down. Oh, no. It's like trying to get a ball out of a tree by throwing other balls at it. Yes. You know that one when you're yeah. a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and there's like there's like that children's book where they just throw everything into the tree and all gets stuck. Mm-hmm. So I'm finally like finally I successfully did manage to hook it while like hanging out a second story window like throwing it <laughs> underhand like a lasso it was it was the most ridiculous scene you should have you should have got like a drone so you could get a better view of it it would actually <laughs> have been much easier with a second drone <laughs> <laughs> send up yeah send up the second drone to get the first drone as soon as it's just drones filling the gutters from edge to edge <laughs> it's drones all the way up yeah, oh, and good. I'm happy to report that uh, I did eventually snag it with the rope it fell off of a two-story tall gutter. Oh no! Hit a couple of tree branches on the way down and landed in our in the next next neighbor's sandy garden, and it totally seems to have survived. It was able to fly afterwards. I didn't even lose a propeller. It seems like it's totally fine. But that's that's very surprising. I mean, other than the the than the feeling of betrayal, it surely has now. Uh, yeah, yeah, all right. We have actually what I think might be a busier show than one would expect, given that we just recorded <laughs> two days ago. Uh, so we should probably go ahead and get started. So let's do some follow-up from two days ago, starting with Anthony Lee, who said, No! I really hope the new tab Safari options stay. Unlike the ATP FM folks, I love the new single bar Safari UI. I just want to put this in here because this is one of a handful of people saying they really like the old Safari UI. So for several shows, we've been saying we have seen literally zero people say they liked it. Finally, they've come out. Not a lot of them, (laughs) but people do exist who like the uh, compact Safari UI, which you can still get, by the way, through a preference. And we'll have more on that in a bit. Although I still have not heard from people who love the iPhone version. I think, there might, I think there might have been one. This was specifically talking about the Mac. I think there might have been one person who liked the iPhone one. But anyway, there's, there's put it this way. It's like the law of big numbers. Like there's so many iPhone users. And I know not everyone uses the beta or whatever. Inevitably, there will always be somebody who likes pretty much any UI. Uh, the, you know, I, I, we kept making extreme statements about it because we literally had heard from zero people. I just wanted to say that that is now not the case. But... Uh, but yeah, uh, just because there are some people that like it doesn't mean it's good and you should keep it. You're really trying to make the most people happy that you can with your UI. Make it usable by the largest number of people, right? It's worth considering when if you're going to either defend their decisions so far or if you're going to propose new alternatives, you can have a goal of like, hey, I want to enable this new cool feature. Say, you know, like like the new one enables the swipe gesture to switch between tabs and everything. Um, or like, you know, th- there's usually some kind of benefit to some kind of new UI. But is that worth it at the expense of the common actions done by millions or possibly billions of people around the world every single day in one of the most commonly used and most critical apps on the phone? If you're going to have major changes to Safari, especially on the iPhone, you have to be really sure that they're going to work for 
everybody. You have to be <laughs> super conservative with that because it's such a core app that's so important. It's like the settings app. Like you have to be really careful with that because so many people use it all the time. And alternatives are are kind of difficult to make and to use. So they have to be as conservative as possible with the UI of Safari. That is not a place to do like radical experimentation, especially if the main thing that experimentation enables is a power user gesture. Like that's that's not a good balance of, of those needs. Dan Blondell writes, the weird Safari decisions on iOS at least make more sense in the context of AR. Floating controls, swiping, be- swiping between tabs like cards, etc. I assume that AR interfaces will be so new to users that Apple will want to do whatever they can in advance to tee up the existing UIs so some elements are familiar. You know, I didn't think about this, but this is a, this is a very smart take. I dig this. Well, is it though? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yes, seriously. So, Harsh. Here, here's the thing. The, the, the kernel of truth, like the, the, the part of this that I think is a real thing, is uh, Apple for sure has in the past you know handful of years really made a concerted effort to try to strengthen the family resemblance of its software experiences, right? It doesn't mean they're going to make everything look exactly the same, but if you there were various times in the past where iOS and macOS even though they both had kind of like an apple flavor they might as well have been designed by entirely different teams i mean obviously macOS 10 existed for years before iOS did and then iOS had to kind of be its own thing cuz very different context for the, for the two things um but there was a time where they started to come back more towards each other and having things look like they are part of the same family is desirable. Um, some of it is in terms of recognition, like, oh, uh, I've seen this control before, and when I see it, I think it will behave kind of like this, and so the appearance and my expectations for the functionality are paired together. It's less to learn. You know, this all makes good sense. But there is a limit to that, where now you're making things the same when you know for a fact that the use context is different. One is touch and one is mouse and trackpad. One is a gigantic screen. One is a tiny phone. Like there are so many differences about the usage context, right? So the idea that Apple would make a UI on the Mac to try to sort of lay the groundwork for familiarity of look and feel of controls for AR, like I'm sure whatever the AR experience is will probably try to have some kind of family resemblance, but you would never want to make decisions on the Mac in an effort to get people ready for a UI that doesn't exist yet that is incredibly different than the Mac because AR is about as different from, probably even more different from the Mac than the Mac is from the iPhone. You really need to make a UI that lets people use the thing that the UI is on. Maybe like as a fifth order concern, you, you want a family resemblance for a familiarity of controls or whatever, right? But I, I have to think that there is almost nothing in the new Safari UI that has anything to do with any effort to try, try to make people uh, familiar with an upcoming AR interface. And if there is, that's a bad idea. Just make Safari have a good UI. Set maybe like, again, third order concern, make it look like it's part of the family with the existing products. And, you know, AR is going to have to do what it has to do. And I feel like AR, what AR has to do is it has to fit into the existing family resemblance while being a good UI for AR, which is very different from the other things. So 
Um, I really hope there was there's no uh, reasoning. Uh, like, I mean, a lot of people said they thought these safari tabs look like touch targets or whatever. Like, that's bad because they're not, right? <laughs> if Apple wants to make touch-based Macs, that makes a lot more sense. But they don't have touch-based Macs, so don't make it look like it's touch-based. So, yeah, it reminds me of iPhone where I can touch things. But, of course, you can't touch these, and it's like, well, then what's the point? Um, so I, I hope this is not true. Yeah, I mean, I think, if anything, if there is any um, relation between, you know, a an assumed... AR interface library that they are presumably developing, you know, if, if all those rumors are true. And this, I, I think it's not necessarily that they're designing this to prepare us for AR. It's probably more like the designers think a certain aesthetic and style is cool right now, and they're using it in both places maybe. But they're not doing it for usability reasons. They're doing it because that's their current style. You know, like a, a long time ago, John Gruber gave this conference talk UI design kind of has fashion phases. Like, it goes through fashions, basically. It, it's not, it isn't just like, we discovered this is the scientific ideal of the usability of a button, and this is how all buttons will look forever. It's more like, this This style's in fashion right now, this style's out of fashion, and the actual usability of those things is pretty far down the priority list in practice these days. And, which, that's still an argument. I, I don't necessarily think we have a good balance of that, but UI design is very, like, current fashion based you know it has its own fashions and things go in and out that are separate from usability or certain devices needs if this is like how their ar in development interfaces look that's probably why not because they want to prepare us ahead of time like it's probably just right now apple thinks this look is cool and their ui designers wanted to do it and they did it like that's that is that is the most likely explanation for this not some kind of grand plan about ar uh, do you think the people working on the Safari UI are disclosed on the AR UI at all? Probably not. I mean, maybe some of the very highest level UI design leads might be, like just because they might be tasked with making that UI as well. Uh, and maybe they might set direction. But I, I don't even know if, if the shared disclosure would even go that low in the organization, even to like the UI people. I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, though, like you think about like this design, the design for the Mac thing is so focused on a need that is fairly Mac specific, which is conservation of vertical space, right? I don't know what aspect ratio the AR glasses will be or whatever, but like it's so it's so uh, like condensing that UI and getting it up out of the way is such a you know thing to do on desktop computers if you want to save vertical space. Who knows what the constraints will be in AR? Will vertical space be the constraint? Will there be any Chrome at all? Will there be such a thing as a window, let alone a toolbar, right? You know, and if, if the AR Safari comes out and has a bunch of rounded rectangles, people are going to say, see, it's just like Safari 15. As Steve Jobs said, rounded rectangles are everywhere, okay? <laughs> just because the AR interface has rounded rectangles does not mean it's like the Safari UI. Um, it, you know, like, how are you going to interact with them in AR? Are you going to have a mouse? Are you going to have a trackpad? Maybe, probably not. Like, it's, you know, how are you interacting with Safari 15 on the Mac? Do you touch the Mac? No, you don't, because it's not a touch interface. Like, I know they look kind of like touch targets, but it's you know at this point with the aesthetic being so so simple, it's kind of you can you will always see aspects of one interface somewhere else. Uh, but honestly, like making a good interface to anything is really hard. And if you are saddled with trying to, like, it's like a strategy check, saddled with doing literally anything other than trying to make the best UI possible for the functionality 
in the app that you're working on. Like, oh, you can make this an app, but not only do you have to make it good, but also make sure it looks like this and it looks like that and incorporates this element and does this trendy thing. That's just making, you know, it's just making more work for yourself and making it harder and probably making your UI worse. All right, so maybe it wasn't such a great idea after all. I still thought it was clever, but never mind. Uh, Guy English wrote with regard to Max, uh, Max Safari's tab close UI, Guy says, aiming at an icon shouldn't destroy the object it represents. That's a pretty good summary. What he's getting at is that in the, uh, the Safari tabs on the Mac, uh, the way the little tabs look as little rounded rectangles is you see the fav icon for the website and then some text that they try to jam in there, right? Uh, and so how do you close a tab? Uh, in the previous versions of Safari, there was sort of a dedicated blank space to the left of the fav icon um, that you would use to close a tab. And there's nothing there looking at it because Apple doesn't want visual clutter. But as soon as your mouse enters the tab in, in Safari, you know, in, in current version of macOS, the little X appears. And then you click on the X and the tab closes, right? Uh, but in the the new version, the Monterey version, the little tabby things don't have any room for that X to appear. So when your mouse enters the little tabby thing, the fav icon is replaced by the X. So if you were to just see the little fav icon and go reach up to it, which is a thing, and try to drag it somewhere, which is a thing a moderately experienced Mac user might do because for a long, long time in macOS, when you saw in the sort of title bar-ish area of the window an icon and then some text next to it, which kind of represented the title of the thing, that icon is very often a proxy icon that you can drag to represent the thing, whether it's the document or whatever, or even in previous versions of Safari and other web browsers, if you grab the fav icon and drag it to the desktop, it'll save like a web location to that website. It'll like save the URL. This is something to expect just based on experience of, you know, this is a common UI idiom. It's not really formalized in human interface guidelines, except maybe the proxy icons are, but like for literal decades, this is the way things work. If you do that on Monterey Safari and go try to grab that fave icon, you can't grab it because as soon as your mouse enters the tab, that fave icon becomes a close button. And if you don't notice that and just go grab and click, you will close the tab that you were just trying to do something with. Now, there's a way to get it back. You can do a key combo. I think undo might even work. I forget if it's Command-Shift-T or maybe that's Chrome. Anyway, there's a way to get the tab back. So it's hopefully non-destructive unless you're in the middle of filling out a form or writing a giant post in the CMS, which you should never, ever do. But everybody knows this. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what Guy is getting at. He filed the, he filed, the reason he mentioned this is he filed a bug on this back when the original version of Monterey Safari came out and said, hey, making the fave icon essentially turn into the close box, probably not what users expect. And Apple closed the bug as part of this sort of redesign. Like, oh, no, all those, like, guys' uh, guess is, like, they just kind of lumped together all the complaints about the Monterey Safari thing. And they said, yeah, no, we changed our mind. We're going back to, like, a more traditional one, as discussed in the previous episode. Um, but he just refiled it and said, yeah, but my specific complaint was not uh, the tabs are all combined with the toolbar and blah, blah, blah. My specific complaint was I go for the icon, it becomes a closed box. Uh, and they did that, of course, to save horizontal space, which was super important to do when everything was on one line. And every time you clicked on the tab, it expanded into the address <laughs> bar. But now that the tabs are on their own line again, I feel like they have the breathing room to give the closed box more space. Honestly, like, we, you know, we know from hearing from various sources that more changes are coming to all the versions of Safari. They're not done fixing it, right? So it's not fair to take judgments now. But I look at the way they've reverted. And it's like, at this point, just go back to the previous one. Because there's nothing in the, nothing in the newly reverted one that has any benefits over the old one. It's just weirder and worse. So just, you know, if you're going to have two UI modes, have one be the new one that Anthony likes and two other people. 
and one be <laughs> <laughs> and one be the existing Safari UI that works fine. We'll see. We'll see what they do in future betas. So we were talking about having like preference uh, preferences in order to enable or disable new Safari user interfaces, and and one of us, probably John, said, you know, I can't think of any other apps that have multiple like complete user interfaces. And friend of the show, Daniel Jalkett, reminded us that Mail is an Apple app that has two completely different UIs, and also Outlook on the Mac. If you have to use that, I'm so sorry, John. And NetNewsWire also fall into similar categories. Yeah, the reason I, I, I uh, thought of NetNewsWire and Outlook, um, and the reason it's interesting that there's three of them is that it's exactly the same choice in all of them, right? So the, when we're talking about what what alternate interface is there in Mail, most, my, people might not know if you just use Apple Mail and sort of its default configuration, but it's basically like a three-column view where the left is the top level, and then, and then you click on something in the left, and then the column to the right of it is... A drill down to that level and then the column to the right of that is a drill down into an individual message so it's like mailbox list of messages in that mailbox and then the message you have selected like column view column like column view in the finder you goes from general to specific left to right i don't, I don't know if it's actually reversed in right to left languages but anyway that is the default interface to apple mail but it has another interface where it does mailboxes on the left the currently selected mailbox on the top part of the remaining right portion, and then the message on the bottom part of the remaining right portion. That's me. Right. And those two views, left to right columns and column, and then two things on top of each other, column row row, I don't know what you want to call them. <laughs> there, some people prefer one, some people prefer the other, and all three of these apps, Apple Mail, NetNewsWire, and Microsoft Outlook, support both of those interfaces and have for years for years and years and years and it seems like although NetNewsWire recently didn't support the other one but i think NetNewsWire is going to bring back the other one um and it's kind of like the scroll direction where i think in the beginning they were like oh everyone will just switch over to three column view because everybody likes it better and a bunch of people were like no i don't like the three column view i like column row row and there was just no way to get enough people to agree that one of them is better than the other. So all three of these applications, which do similar things and, you know, sort of have the same kind of hierarchy of thing, list of things in the thing and then the thing, right? <laughs> Just continue to ship with these, quote unquote, two different UIs. Now, they're not really that different. It's not any different than saying, oh, the Finder has five different UIs because you can do list view, column view, icon view, you know. <laughs> if you think of it that way, it's not like they have two entirely different UIs, but it is just roughly analogous to the small UI that Safari has, which is the part that's not the web page in every web browser window, which is the tabs, the address bar, the toolbar. If you can totally change that, as you can in Monterey Safari right now, that's kind of the equivalent of just saying, how do you want how do you want that thing to look? I want it to look like this, you know, three columns or a column and two rows, right? Uh, I'm hoping and expecting that the Safari, like I don't see a need for the Safari one to support these two, because as previously established, it's not as if it's like close to 50-50 in terms of preference for the new UI. It's just Anthony and three other people, and then literally everyone else in the world hates it. So I don't expect, <laughs> I don't think like that Apple's like, well, we need to preserve this UI from the betas of Monterey for the people who did like it. It just kind of seems like a, a hangover or like a, you know, uh, letting down gently the people who are uh, proponents of that UI within Apple to even l l keep it in the, you know, keep it in the uh, in the app as an option. I really hope by the time they ship, they pick one UI and that it is not the new one. 
Ben Goldmer writes, Darkroom's flagon reject workflow is way faster for me than anything Photos does. And we will provide a link to the information or the, the website about the app. And then apparently somebody wrote a Medium post about uh, <laughs> why this is better. Yeah, this is the first uh, of uh, a lot of feedback items uh, really talking about an area of, of Apple Photos that I haven't explored, mostly because Photos serves my needs more or less. But uh, two things. One, it's possible to make a Mac app that reads and understands Apple's photo library. I'm assuming this is an official API because there are a lot of apps that do this. Uh, so Darkroom is one of those apps. Uh, I'm not if I'm not sure if Flag and Reject is its flagship feature, but apparently it does it really well. So if you want to have an app that does better than photos and sort of going through your pictures and deciding which ones you like and which ones you don't, check out Darkroom, check out the blog post to describe the workflow. So that's not its only feature. It's like a massively featured app. I, I, don't, I haven't actually used it before, but it has a lot more than that. Yeah. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, most of these apps, uh, like the, w- the way Apple does... Uh, extensions to other apps is you have to ship your extension inside another app so you can do what i do with my silly reload button which is you ship an app that does nothing and its only function is to contain the app extension like that's where the extensions live they live inside my app is as an app extension and then safari through the magic of apple's extension mechanism can see all the little extensions that live inside other apps and say oh within safari i can uh, you can use these extensions to put a toolbar button up or whatever Apple Photos does the same thing. So you can download either a little container application or a giant full-fledged application, and they may also have buried inside them, in addition to their application, an extension for Photos. And one of the types of extensions that Photos supports is what they call an edit extension. In addition to things like Mimeo for like a book printing extension or whatever, but an edit extension is what it sounds like. If you see a photo inside the Apple Photos app, you can use an edit extension to say, I want to edit this photo but I don't want to edit it with Apple's Photos app. I want to edit it with the extension from this app. And you won't leave Apple Photos. That extension will show its UI inside Apple Photos, right? It's kind of like OpenDoc, but not really. So you can use more powerful editing tools within Apple Photos without launching the other standalone app, without using the standalone app, just getting access to their editing tools. So both of those things I haven't really investigated. Alternate apps that are alternatives to Photos that read the same photo library, or edit extensions. And Darkroom is the, the first of those that was suggested to us. So would you like to talk about the second then? Sure. Um, Kyle McMahon had another suggestion. This one is called Raw Power, um, <laughs> which, yeah, okay, I can see what you're doing there. Sounds like a powder uh, I would be taking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Kyle, <laughs> yeah. Kyle says, since you guys are into iCloud Photo Library as a library sync layer, but less, as a, less into it as a photo editor, you should look into a Mac and iOS app called Raw Power. I only looked at the Mac version of this, by the way, but apparently it's on iOS as well. The developer is Nick Bahad, who worked at Apple in the Apple Photo Apps group, including back in the days of Aperture. Uh, the app positions itself as being particularly good for raw photos, but it absolutely works with JPEGs files as well. The app has a standalone mode, but in my mind, the real magic is a mobile. It can essentially be a third-party front-end for your photos library, iCloud syncing it all. The developer being an Apple alum, it is calling into the same system em- image editing framework as Photos.app does, and you may prefer the app's interface or results and the fact that it exposes more of Apple's raw engine controls than Photos does. And there's, we'll put a link to a video introduction from the developer. Uh, Kyle continues, big caveat, before you go all in on edit extensions for Photos app, understand the implications of when your saved saved non-destructive edits are from an extension, not Apple. Because Photos.app can't, I keep reading Photos.app because that's what the person wrote, but I hate that. Because Apple Photos cannot depend on the extension always being installed, 
extension editors have to render out a full quality copy of your photo. If you uninstall the extension, your only options for adjusting the edit are to start over. So that's important to remember. It's not like it destroys your original, but because photos can't just expect that extension to always be there, if you do a bunch of edits, it has to like sort of save out your edited version and say, okay, you did a bunch of edits with this editing extension and alongside the original, here is your edited version. If you uninstall that extension and say, oh, I changed my mind, I wanna brighten it up a little bit. Because you don't have the extension anymore, you can't bring up that picture again and adjust the brightness slider because you, don't, you literally don't even have that extension anymore. And so it always burns in your edited version. Again, it doesn't overwrite your original, but it's not as flexible as using photos where you never will sort of burn in a copy that is visible to you. You always have access to the original. You can always go back and readjust. Um, but anyway, I took a look at this raw power thing. It is both a standalone app and it is an editing extension. And as far as I can tell, the editing extension looks like it has pretty much all the controls of the standalone app for the one specific task of editing. But if you use the standalone app, it seems like, I don't know if you can use it as a replacement for photos, but it basically looks like photos. I was amazed. I launched it and it says, hey, do you want me to uh, point myself at a folder full of photos or at your library? I said, here you go, point at my library. And it said, okay, I found 140,000 photos. <laughs> like, wow, you, d you did find 140,000 photos and there they all are. And you can scroll through them like, what the? Again, it's not duplicating. Your, it's just reading my photo library. Um, so I paid for it. It's like 50 bucks. I paid for, you know, a one time $50 fee. That's it? Yeah. The uh, the Dark Room run, I think, is a subscription thing, but I think it's pretty cheap. So I, I bought it. It's a $50 app uh, and it has way more editing controls than photos. Now, I don't I don't use Lightroom. I'm sure it has. I'm sure it's better than this or whatever. Who knows? But um, because this is a developer who worked on the Apple Photos apps, I'm assuming they are very familiar with Apple's formats and it really does expose stuff like you can adjust the depth on the portrait mode pictures and stuff like that. It has, you know, uh, all the things that I talked about not having in photos, like the lens correction and distortion and, and much better controls for finding areas that are clipping and stuff like that. That's all in this. Uh, I was pretty impressed by it. Um, I'm not sure how much I'll use it, but I like, I like being able to have uh, another go-to app where I don't have to sort of change what I'm doing. I don't have to suddenly use Lightroom or something. I'm still just dedicated to my one photos library. But if I want to do an edit that photos can't handle rather than like exporting it into Photoshop and then re-importing it, or by the way, within photos, you can you can say edit in and then select an application and select like Acorn or Photoshop. That's different than editing extensions, right? But anyway, I don't have to commit to a new library a format or anything like that. But there's more, I have more options for how I want to do edits than just the tools that are in photos. And, and I say, again, looking at the raw power thing, it made me kind of appreciate the Apple photo controls because they are so dumbed down and simplified that 99% of the time, what I want to do is there. But for that other 1%, especially for raws, which I do have a, a, a bunch of, it's nice to be able to have a slightly fancier app that doesn't require me to like buy in on Lightroom or whatever. I like too how like this, I, I mean, I have, I've never tried these apps that integrate with photo library, but uh, I like that theoretically you could use both like you could because if they're using the Apple photos or, you know, iCloud photo library as their data store and sync layer, you don't have to just choose one app that you do everything in. You can ha you can try different ones. You can have different apps for different tasks or for different needs. You can switch between them at like at will. And that's just kind of a really that's a really cool thing to me that I love the editing controls in Lightroom. I just was never really able to achieve the kind of success and integration I wanted with Lightroom as the like storage and sync layer. I want to keep using Apple Photos as my storage and sync platform. 
it's already there. It gets all my photos automatically. It gets everything from my phone automatically. I'm already paying for it. Everything's already synced and backed up and everything. So that's great. I don't want to join someone else's cloud and you know use someone else's platform or have my like fancy camera photos separate from all my phone photos for for no reason. I don't want that. So this kind of uh, I guess API for other apps to be able to work against the Apple Photos library. That's really cool, and the fact that there are a couple of a couple of good apps for it, I actually might check these out. Yeah, they are the apps are aware of each other. Like I was running Raw Power at the same time as I was running Photos, and I was like editing the same picture, and I forget which app it was, but one of them threw up a dialogue and said, "Just so you know, you're kind of in the middle of editing the same picture in another app. So do you want to like discard the changes that are in progress over there? Do you like it knows it does like contract resolution? You can't literally edit the same photo at the same time and just like cross your fingers. I did." It seems like it's aware uh, of what thing both things are doing. But if you wanted to, for example, use one, run them both at the same time, but use one app for like your reject, like if you want to use Darkroom to like sort through and reject them quickly because it's got a good interface to that, and then just delete them when you're done. When you flip back over to the photos, you'll see those things poof out of existence. Just maybe don't try to edit the same photo at the same time in multiple apps because, you know, I, Raw Power, I think this was the app that threw up the dialogue, is smart enough to know you're doing that and warn you, but I can imagine other ones maybe not being so and you'll just be like last update wins and you might be sad. So a quick update before we move out of photos. I have, according to photos on my Mac, 73,609 photos, 4,899 videos, and I still have 20,000 left to upload as of Friday night, the 16th. Alarmingly, the bar, you know, the little progress bar, looks like it's barely moved despite hypothetically tens of thousands of photos having been uploaded. So I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, again, I don't know. Sitting here today, I would probably change my tune in a week or two, but sitting here today, I don't know if I can recommend this to someone who has a media library of my size that wants to just dive right in. This is very slow, very clunky. I, I edited the dates of my videos that were from the year 3 million, and that's <laughs> great on, uh, on, on photos on my Mac, but that hasn't yet synced to any of my other devices, which is super delightful. So, yeah, I... I guess this is good, maybe one day, but I'm still waiting for that day to arrive. Yeah, keep waiting. Uh, you'll get uploaded eventually. Uh, someone said in the chat room that Raw Power is 40 bucks, not 50 so I went to the App Store page to confirm that, but of course I can't see the price, can I? I'll, I'll just go look at I'll just go look at my purchases and it will show me the transaction. Nope. Uh, maybe, yeah, and maybe Darkroom not. seems to be something like 25 bucks a year or 50 for forever, so that's not bad either. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing about uh, raw power is that it has it has some even though it's reading the photo library it has some kind of metadata of its own because the first thing I tried to do when I went into it was uh, filter it's you know it showed me my 140,000 photos in thumbnail view I'm like wow that was fast and then I wanted to filter them to just show the raws which is a thing you can do in an app that's not Apple Photos really easily, um, because there was a little filter thing, and I clicked it, and lo and behold, it had controls. It, what it had in there was control. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there are things you can put in a user interface, like they're <laughs> called standard controls, where there are checkboxes, and there are pop-up menus, and there are <laughs> buttons, and all sorts of things you can use to let you do things with an app. Uh, Apple just thinks either a blank gray wall or a text field that you can type things in and pray is the way to go. But anyway, this had controls, and one of them said, show me only photos of pop-up menu, and in the pop-up menu was JPEG, RAW, JPEG plus RAW, and boy, it was really easy for me to check those checkboxes and click RAW from the pop-up menu. Anyway, I'm just angry because Photos has so much space for UI, and they just deleted it all from iPhoto in favor of like a super smart text field that I really don't like. Um, 
So uh, when I went to do that filter, I saw a little word that said indexing. Another thing the photos doesn't understand. Hey, look at that. Tell me something right in the UI when I'm trying to do it instead of just graying it out and me saying, why can't I filter? Why can't I select the file type? Oh, because it's indexing. And it indexed and it didn't index for very long. It was like maybe 15 minutes it indexed. And when it was done, I could say, just show me the raws and boop, 140,000 thumbnails got compressed down to only a few thousand with a little with a little tiny UI over the thumbnails showing a little R for raw, a little R plus J for raw plus JPEG, a little icon for ones that were edited. It's amazing. Like I can understand why this person maybe left Apple. It's like, look, you can make a good photo editor if you are willing to put UI on the screen. And guess what? Raw Power has a UI for editing photos. Imagine. <laughs> All right. And finally, Aaron Bar- Brager writes, with possibly the best news I have heard all week long. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the proxy icon can be re-enabled in macOS Monterey Beta 3. Woo! This is extremely, extremely good news. So what are we talking about? On most document-based Mac apps, anything really worth its salt, there is a little icon up next to the title of the app that you can grab. And when you do that, you're grabbing a representation, a proxy of the file you're working on. So like in Word or in TextEdit or whatever. Finder windows. In Finder windows. You can grab that little icon and move it around your file system and it will move the original file, which is super cool. And it's something that blew my mind when I think it was Marco told me about this years and years and years ago before I even knew John. So that's why I know it wasn't John. But don't try it in uh, Safari and Monterey because you'll just end up closing the tab. (laughs) <laughs> uh, why do you have to bring us down john i was so excited why do you have to be like that so anyway synergy this connects all this this all connects up to the previous one anyway mm-hmm, go on mm-hmm. so the point being uh you can go into accessibility display and there's a checkbox show window title icons and it will bring the proxy icons back because otherwise in monterey it you have to like hover for in uh, unconscious unconscious i can't say that word for way too long in order to <laughs> in order to uh, get that proxy icon to show up so. yeah and in big Sur as well and one of the most common things that i use this for is if you are in a terminal window and you want to refer to a folder or file you can drag its icon or its proxy icon from that area of the title bar into a terminal window and it will insert it as a properly escaped shell argument so it's very very handy Uh, one of the most common things i do is if i have a finder render that i want to operate on in the terminal i will open up a terminal window and then type cd space and then drag the proxy icon there to get a terminal that's right in that folder. I know there are other ways to do that, but that's how I do it. But yeah, it's a very, very common thing for me to do that. So very happy to see this. This is one of those uh, you know, Big Sur design regressions that, that I uh, have complained about a lot. And so to have an option to fix this in Monterey is going to make me upgrade to Monterey much sooner, I think, than, yeah, <laughs> than I otherwise would have. <laughs> and the interesting thing about this is that, like, in Big Sur, there was a uh, like sort of undocumented PLS thing that you could set to reduce the delay on the animation for the hover. So it's it's almost like someone inside Apple at some point, I don't know if that's been there since day one in Big Sur either way, understood that it was annoying to have to wait for that hover animation and said, well, we'll just have a PLS key. So if you really don't like it, you can set the animation time to zero and then it'll just be instant, right? That's it reminds me of another kind of like Band-Aid on a bad design. It's bad design to hide that icon because, look, is the icon useful? Then show it. What advantage do you get not showing it? Ah, less visual clutter. We don't want vis- visual clutter. It's like, okay, I understand not wanting visual clutter, but you, if you pursue that to its to an absurd degree, you end up hurting functionality. You end up hiding too much UI. Tons of people, Casey was excited to learn about the proxy icon, but 
if you it's not even visible on the screen even fewer people are going to discover it and that's a shame and honestly is the visual clutter really killing your, your ui like like what are you even aiming for do people just bask in the minimalist aesthetic i didn't think that one icon's gonna hurt anything so I'm glad that in the follow-up to that, they don't say, we just made the, the animation shorter or we made it instant by default. How about you just show it all the time? That's great. And it does it in, I'm not sure which apps it does it in. I tried, like, it does it in Preview. Uh, it does it in the Finder. Uh, the the, the non-browser-style Finder windows always showed it, but now the browser-style ones show it as well. Uh, and then where you enable this it's not a plist hacker and it's not on by default but you have to go to accessibility system preferences accessibility display and under display there is an option to show window title icons i mean arguably it is accessibility as in hey more people will be able to use this because now people will see it and you know it's not super obvious that you can do something with that icon but seeing the icon is really important first step in thinking about what maybe you can do with it and again I know this is an obscure feature, but it's been in macOS for decades, right? It is a power user feature, but you only really need to show somebody this feature once, and it pretty much works everywhere you expect to see that, again, with the exception of Safari tabs, uh, because when you see an icon next to some text in a title-ish thing on macOS, you can usually grab it and do something with it. Again, just grabbing, you get the URL in Safari, because what else are you going to do with it, right? But if it's a file, if it represents a file like a document window or a folder, you get the thing. Well-established UI. This is, by the way, predates macOS 10. Like, this is a classic macOS thing, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. But it's, like, it's a powerful feature. It's a useful feature. It's one of the advantages of using macOS. It's a thing that you can do on macOS in a natural way that tries to be consistent from app to app. And then, you know, apps that change or subvert it for no big gain, like the, you know, the Safari one of, like, well, we have to jam everything into one bar because we vertical space is important. And one of the other things we're going to sacrifice on the altar of that is the, the proxy icons, which is a shame. Or hiding them to save visual clutter, which is kind of like just sweeping that feature under the covers, making it so people won't even know it exists. I'm not sure that's, like, it's you know, is that an accessibility feature or are you just fixing your UI? <laughs> yeah, because, like, like, the reason why this is better this way is because of what we were talking about last week, about, like, about stability of the UI. Every time you have something where you have, like, okay, well, on hover, these things are going to change. You're, something's going to move, something's going to appear, something's going to disappear. It's confusing, it's jarring, it's unstable, and it makes things harder and more annoying to use. What you want is for the controls that you use most often to be shown exactly when you need them, which is like it could be mm -hmm. any time. So you might as well show them all the time unless there's some mm -hmm. really good reason not to. And in this case, like, I mean, obviously, like, whoever whoever is in charge of this design um, obviously is not giving in to the concept that it's better this other way. Instead, they have yielded or been forced to yield okay, well, we can make an accessibility argument that all of this excess animation of stuff moving around, kind of in the same vein as the reduce motion option, maybe that can be, you know, maybe that's, that's you know, a bad thing for some people. So maybe we can make this not have this motion of this hover state. This is like the tiniest amount of motion to reduce. It's like a literal 16-point movement. Right, but like I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing this is shoved into accessibility because of the internal politics of pushing back on this part of the design clearly the people who are in charge are so minimalist right now that this kind of thing cannot just be the new way things work so i think the accessibility option is like the thing that the people on our side of the argument were able to get through 
obviously, I'm sure there's all sorts of like, you know, pressures and politics inside about this because, you know, whatever we complain about, people inside Apple are also complaining about it. But it's just just a question of who wins the argument and who has control over it at the end of the day. Um, So this option shouldn't exist. They should just fix the design. So it's always this way because there seems to be very little upside for it to be the way it is in Big Sur now just having these things hidden and they zoom over when you hover over like this one spot in the window that you wouldn't even think to hover over normally like it just (laughs) it's it's so clumsy it's kind of the same reason they did the change to the safari closed boxes because when this this ui came at the same time as they uh introduced the ui in the finder and other windows where the title bar does not have its own row for itself right one of the reasons proxy icons worked, and by the way, the chat room has confirmed that it was in classic macOS, at least one person has anyway, um, is that the title bar in classic macOS and in macOS 10 for most windows for most of its life goes from edge to edge on the window. That's a lot of horizontal space. Uh, and you might look at that and say, well, what a waste of space where you, you get an entire row, the, all that vertical space, and the only thing you're going to put in there is the title. The reason it's good to have all that vertical space is, first of all, sometimes windows aren't that wide. They might be narrow. And second... For document windows, a very common case, the title of the document is there. And document titles can be long, 255 characters or whatever the limit is. Uh, So you'd want to see the full title of the document, not truncated, because that's an important thing for you to know, especially if you have similarly named documents. If you're a programmer, you may find yourself with similarly named documents, although these days they're all wedged into an Xcode tab or a sidebar that you can't expand wide enough. But anyway, um, (laughs) even with that, when you've got the whole width of a window and that window is pretty wide or even just page size you can use a 255 character file name and still probably have room for a little icon for a little 16 by 16 icon and so that's where it lived right big sur introducing the finder a ui where okay we're not going to give the title bar its own row instead we're going to see if this sounds familiar take the title bar and, and combine it with the toolbar And now all of a sudden horizontal space is at a premium because we've got the configurable toolbar with all the buttons that you can configure in there, plus the title, plus the proxy icon, plus maybe a search field if it's like there's lots of stuff all in one row now. And suddenly the title doesn't have all the space that it can stretch out. And just like in a document in the finder, it's kind of important to see what folder is it that I'm looking at here, the full name of that folder. So to save space, they said, well, what's non-essential in here? I guess we can hide the proxy icon. Well, but that's a useful feature, so we still want it to be there. Okay, we'll make it appear on hover. That's how this came about. That's how you, you know, it, it makes some sense, right? But then it sort of snowballs into, oh, and by the way, proxy icons are gone everywhere. We're not going to put them in the title bar preview windows. Like, just hide them everywhere. Because once we've done this hide show little animation thing, let's just make that the new standard across the entire user interface. All because they decided we got to save some vertical space in this toolbar, so we're going to combine the title bar plus the toolbar, right? And they've been doing that in a lot of apps. Combine the title bar and toolbar, make the content go from the top to the bottom. In some apps, it works. In some UIs, it's an improvement. But in this particular case... They were, you know, the, the compromise that the cost of, of using this UI was a, an awkward hover state for a feature that, you know, I guess enough power users use that they have seen complaints about it. I don't think in this case, the solution is to go back to title bar on top all the time. And by the way, in the finder, the only re- it doesn't do that in the in the non browser finder windows. I hate talking about the finder. No one knows what I'm talking about. But anyway. The finder windows that don't have sidebars have dedicated title bars, but the ones that do have sidebars have the combined ones. When you do the show window title icons, it shows them everywhere, which is as it should be. Um, But I do understand why they hit it in the first place. It's just that they sort of took that ball and ran with it, and they should have 
said, okay, we'll hide them as an option in this one mode of finder window, but across the whole rest of the OS, we'll leave it as is. Hopefully that's where they end up eventually. I would like a quick, can, can I challenge you gentlemen, <laughs> a quick update. How is how are the latest betas on iPhone specifically? Because in a couple of weeks, it, I will have all travel or interesting related things done for the summer. Uh, and so I was thinking about maybe committing my carry phone to a beta, be that either the public or the developer beta. So quickly, gentlemen, probably Marco specifically, how are they these days? You know, there are certain seasons where you can really feel like you have a beta. You know, seasons where, like, <laughs> you'll feel your phone heating up in your pocket in the middle of the day for no reason. Like, what's going on? And you pick it up, and it's, like, at the Apple boot screen. Like, okay. <laughs> you know? Like, there there are some years like that where I wouldn't really recommend it. Um, this year, so far, it has been totally fine. Again, it's only a couple of weeks. It's only one person's experience. But I've also heard from a lot of other people that, like, anecdotally, it sounds like, this is a pretty good year for the phone. At this time, I would not necessarily recommend the watch beta. As with all watch betas, you can never downgrade. Uh, Upgrading to a beta on the watch is usually not a good idea unless you're developing a watch app. Uh, One of the weird problems I've found with it is that I often don't get notifications. And when I do get notifications, uh, they oftentimes will only stay at the, like, the first part of the slide up where it shows you what the notification is from but doesn't show you its content yet oh nice it will like like it's stuck on that the bigger more pressing problem is that the watch beta seems to be unreliable at updating the sleep screen now you might think who cares well the sleep screen is what shows the time and i have caught it multiple times in the last few days displaying the wrong time off by like 15 minutes until i do a wrist raise and then it refreshes and updates the time oh cool (laughs) so that's a bit of a problem on the watch beta right now so i wouldn't recommend the watch beta but the phone oh i haven't um i haven't i don't think i've even used the ipad beta so i can't speak to that at all but the phone beta has been pretty good um there is a little bit of oddity and a little bit of annoyance to the new focus feature so you know, as a quick reminder, the do not disturb feature and the automatic do not disturb scheduling and everything has has now been rolled into a much larger, much more featured feature uh, that includes all these different modes besides just do not disturb that you can set. You can now set like sleep and work and focus and all the different modes that you, you can create your own. You can delete the ones they have and add different ones. Um, and each of those has its own settings for when it's automatically engaged, what kind of apps or contacts can break through the focus mode and everything. Um, Notifications, now, like the first time you get a notification from an app, it will now ask you, like, is this time-sensitive or not? And it's time-sensitive ones will break through, and they'll be displayed with a label that says time-sensitive, like, as part of the notification UI. I have found this system so far to be a little overwrought and a little bit burdensome i know i don't know necessarily if it's just me getting used to it still um but it it has been a friction point for me using ios 15 so far now i don't think they're going to change any of that because this is like a headlining feature of ios 15 and i think the concept of having a lot of control over do not disturb and and being able to create these additional modes i think it's a good concept i even said i said as much during our wdc episode like i i noticed they were 
you know, when they were talking about this, I said, oh, that's great because Do Not Disturb has been so great for me. Um, but in practice, what this does is add additional levels and complexities to Do Not Disturb so that it, it, it is no longer a simple feature. It is now a complicated feature. Uh, and, and seeing the time-sensitive uh, labels on every notification from like calendar and reminders and stuff like that, it's a little much. So that I'm not super hot on. Um, but the rest of iOS 15 seems fine to me. Um, I haven't had any like apps that don't work on it right or anything like that. So everything seems okay. Yeah, I can speak to the iPad, and it's been pretty solid for me. I mean, I can't think of any specific things that have been a real bugbear. So it's been fine on the iPad, but I've been very reluctant to put it on my phone. And I won't be putting it on my phone until travel is complete. But um, that that time is coming sooner rather than later, and so I was curious how bad it was. And it sounds like not bad. So sometime in the last week or two, I forget exactly when it was, Apple just out of the blue released an accessory. And for the first time in a fair bit of time, other than AirTags, I suppose, it's an accessory that I'm really interested in. I haven't gotten my hands on it yet, and I don't think anyone has, but Apple's released a MagSafe battery case. And I know that Apple has had battery cases on and off for years now, and I've seen them many times. I've held them in my hands a handful of times, but I've never never really cared for them. It, it didn't seem like it was something I really wanted. And part of that was because early on in my iPhone life, uh, I would buy bespoke battery packs that would be, you know, cases that would wrap around your phone and would plug in via the lightning connector and, um, and it would charge your phone as required. And, and for a while, I really liked that, particularly around WWDC time. But after I replaced, you know, my fourth bespoke battery pack or something like that, it occurred to me, this is wasteful and silly, and there must be a better way to do this. And Apple's older battery packs, I think, were the same story. You know, they were they were they were fit specifically for particular phones, and so again, I find it to be kind of wasteful. And I've just used, you know, a, a battery bank, as some people call it, you know, just an external battery pack that you connect via a cable. But that's clunky in its own way. You know, you have a cable hanging out, and it's, a, it's let me tell you, it is super cool to look like me in general, but I look incredibly <laughs> cool when I have a cable going from, like, my back pocket to my front pocket so I can charge my phone from the power bank that's in the back, you know, while the phone is in the front. It's just, I just look, oh, I look so hot. It's the nerd version of a wallet chain. I was about to exactly say, exactly right. what if mm-hmm. what if you make a, an, a lightning cable that looks like a wallet chain yeah and i'll get really baggy ni- late 90s style jeans it'll be great that's it put on backwards listen to crisscross this will be great <laughs> right. uh so anyway so the point is apple's released a magsafe battery case you keep saying battery case but it's not a battery case well that's what it says in the damn show notes john who wrote that it wasn't it's me. a magsafe battery pack thank you very much right but that's uh. not the, name of the product it's not the whole point you just made the point emphatically that it's not a case it doesn't encase anything it doesn't wrap around anything it is in fact a rectangular solid that sucks onto the back of your <laughs> phone through the magic of magnets. Indeed. Magnets, how do they work? Not actually magnet. Not actually sucking. <laughs> In any well, case. it's kind of sucking. Oh, my gosh. Focus, <laughs> gentlemen, focus. <laughs> oh, no, we just talked about that. All right, concentrate, gentlemen, concentrate. It's the, it's the sandwich closing for us again, right? Yes, exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so the point being, uh, it, it's this battery pack, John. <laughs> I'm really, I would just call it a battery. Oh my god! It's a MagSafe battery. I mean, it's it's like a backpack. It goes. It's like a battery backpack. It is called MagSafe Battery Pack. <laughs> I'm going to call it the MagSafe Battery Pack. 
mean, if you put it on the desk, it's more of a platform. Oh my god! Well, Occasionally, that, actually, that's right. It's a, it's a it's a charger too. Anyway, go ahead. Right. <laughs> it's a MagSafe battery platform pack. Oh my god! I quit. You're both fired, and I quit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this thing looks cool. I, I think I probably will get one of these. Uh, yes, it is only white, which even to me, I think is a little bit of a dubious choice. No, that's, but that's your color. <laughs> but no, it's not. Say, after, all, after all this, you're going to skip over describing the thing? I'm going to do it then. Here, stand back. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> It is It is a rounded rectangle. Hey, Steve was right. It's a rounded rectangle that looks like it's like a centimeter thick or something. I don't know how thick it is. But anyway, it's like a, a, a rounded white rectangle. It's on one side of it, it's got the little MagSafe ring and little line, right? So this this will match up with a little circle and line that are embedded in the back of your phone that has MagSafe, right? And on the other side, it's just a flat rounded rectangle. Um, and it's got a place where you can plug it in to charge the battery itself. Uh, if you plug it in and lay it sort of with the, the MagSafe part of it facing up on your desk, you can use it as a MagSafe charger because here it is laying flat on your desk and you just put your phone on top of it and bloop, you know, it charges your phone or presumably, you know, whatever, any other MagSafe thing you put on there. I don't think you can charge AirPods on it. That would be an interesting experiment. But. That's actually, I've, I've done a lot of thinking and researching about this. And that's my biggest unknown for this is can it charge an AirPods cheat case? A regular MagSafe cable, like the regular ones Apple sells with the wires attached to the MagSafe puck, those do, totally can and do charge anything Qi as far as I know. They are standard Qi chargers just with magnets on them. And so you can, and I, we do in our household all the time, put your AirPods case on them and it will charge. That's the only thing I use mine for. <laughs> oh yeah, gosh. but so it, it is fine for that. My, my theory on this, though... I don't think it will work that way. Um, Casey mentioned it doesn't seem like anybody has these yet. It it, it doesn't even seem like they've done press reviews yet. Um, My guess is this might not function as a generic Qi charger because I don't think it has any buttons to turn it on. So while it might function as a Qi charger when it is plugged into a cable, I don't know if it's going to be able to function as that when it's when you're out and about which you know kind of ruins the point oh yeah i I wasn't totally expecting it to to do that when it wasn't plugged in i'm saying like can this double as a charger on your desk well we'll find out when we get them but uh but the point is that it does have that mode and then the other mode obviously is when you stick it to the back of your phone and in that case it behaves kind of like the apple's battery cases have always behaved just pretend it's you know not pretend it's permanently attached to your phone uh, you know, you can use it that when your phone starts to run out of battery, it'll, it'll you know, drain from the battery pack. Um, you can also do the reverse charging where, oh, okay, let me get this right. What is the, what do the people consider the reverse charging? So this is, you, where you plug if you in your have phone. it attached, yeah, if you have it attached to the back of your phone and you plug a, a lightning cable into your phone, your phone will charge the battery pack from the current it's getting from the lightning port. Right. Um, and I think no other third-party battery pack things can do that. Is that correct? Yes, only Apple's, yes. This is the first instance of reverse charging we're seeing from the iPhone. Yeah, so the, the charging specs are when the battery itself is plugged into the wall, the battery pack itself will charge your phone at 15 watts, which is the MagSafe, like, fastest charging thing. So if you plug in the battery pack, and whether it's laying on your desk or wherever it is, and stick it on your phone, you get 15 watts, right? But when it's just the battery pack free-floating stuck to the back of your phone, the battery pack only charges your phone at 5 watts. And people have been sad about that, but I kind of feel like as long as it can keep up with the phone, it's not like because it's a battery pack, it's not like you're waiting around for it to charge. I guess maybe if you're like, oh, I just want to glom this little manta ray on the back of my phone, wait 30 minutes and have 100% charge, right? That's not going to happen. It's only 5 watts. But I think 
I would rather have it sort of slowly charging my phone with the idea, the whole point is that I'm going to use my phone with this thing on the back of it because it's not connected to anything else. But, you know, different strokes, right? So anyway, it's much slower when it's not plugged in itself. Um, there is no power adapter or cable included in the box. Uh, again, p- people now look at that and depending on your point of view, you say, I glance at the price and I say, for that price, it quote unquote should come with a power adapter and cable on it because it seems you know like cheap that they're not including that and it doesn't seem like they're passing the savings on to me and who even knows right but on the other hand the the reason apple would give for this and i think it is somewhat legit is that if we give these things to everybody a bunch of people will already have the cables and adapters that they need and these will just go to waste and end up in a drawer somewhere and end up getting thrown in the garbage, right? That it's, it's a waste. I don't know about that because the the big fancy, what is it? Is it a 15, 20, 20 watt charger, the USB-C charger? Not a lot of people have that. I know, but like the, the general philosophy is if we include these accessories to every single one of our products, if you like, they're, what they're trying, I feel like what they're trying to do is not just sort of give you by default all this stuff because you will inevitably end up with an excess of stuff because even though you say well for every one product don't i need one wire and one adapter and the answer is no because people always have some kind of sharing because not all of your devices are plugged in at once usually unless you're like traveling a lot and you really need them they're all plugged in and get charged real fast so i get what they're doing i feel like it is a reduction in waste that's not just an excuse that's a real reason the problem is because Apple's products are have such high margins, when they take these things out, like even though there's like nothing to compare it to, they just look at the price and they say, I feel like that price should include this stuff. And it's not like with this battery pack that Apple has ever had this product existing before and we can compare the price before and after or whatever. It's, it's just that feeling that we have of like, well, these, these things are, Apple's products are expensive. They should come with that stuff, right? Or... Maybe Apple, you know, Apple doesn't actually need to do this, but if Apple did do something like it, say, oh, instead of $99, by the way, it's $99, instead of $99, it's $95, and that 4 bucks is your savings, or some kind of thing where they adjust the price to psychologically make people think, like, there's your savings for not including the crap. But, of course, Apple would never do that because that just is you know, a value game that they don't do with their pricing, right? So some people are going to be mad that it doesn't come with the stuff. But particularly with this thing, I'm kind of on board with the idea of I'd prefer this stuff to be a la carte right? So I can buy, it's the same reason I buy a camera body with no lens. Oh, that should come with a kit lens. Obviously with the camera, it's not a great analogy because you save money by not buying it with the kit lens, but doing it a la la carte, I mean, especially with things like adapters and cables and stuff, lets people get only the stuff they need. And yes, it probably also makes money for more people. It's kind of like the half size paper towel sheets that people don't know that story. Yeah. I'm sure this guy uh, deserves all the billion dollars he's got, but Uh, Paper towel, rolls of paper towels in the U.S. Uh, Someone came up with the idea that instead of having paper towel sheets be whatever size they were, which is kind of squarish, and you tear off a square at a time, right? Uh, This person's brilliant idea was, let's make them like rectangular. Take the existing square and cut it in half. And so now there's perforations twice as often in the roll. And that might sound like the dumbest idea you've ever heard. It's like, great, you're genius. You, you You made it so I can tear off half sheets. Like... I'm is this what you get paid for? How many years did you come up to think of this thing? It turns out letting people have half sheets makes people happier because they feel like they're not wasting as much because they're like, oh, I just need a half sheet for this one little job. And also makes people use more paper towels. 
which is great for the paper towel companies <laughs> because the roll runs out faster and they can try, they can sell more paper towels. It is the ultimate win-win of just like self-owned co- consumer philosophy. Like it, it like the customers think they're being uh, frugal, but in reality, they're using more paper towels than they were before. Uh, See also <laughs> plastic recycling. <laughs> well, that's a slightly different thing, but. But anyway, yeah, this is kind of the opposite of that and that I think Apple is trying to do a good thing, but their entire pricing philosophy just makes it feel like damage to the customer. It just makes you feel bad that you're getting less stuff for, quote unquote, the same price because you look at the price and it is an expensive price. We'll compare it to competitors in a second. And you're like, $99 and it doesn't even come, not just the charging brick, doesn't even come with the cable. It's just like I get it out of the box and like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? I can I can do nothing with it. I can use the charge that it came with me from <laughs> ship from the factory, and then I can do nothing. But again, people would say, "Well, you can't do nothing because this product is useless without a phone." Do you have a phone? Well, great. I bet you have a cable to charge it. Right, and then the phone can now reverse charge it. Like to me, like I <laughs> exactly, think for this right. product, I, I I wouldn't expect this product to come with a cable or a charger. Uh, what's interesting, like you know, for the same hundred dollars, you can get a HomePod Mini that does come with a cable and charger. And it's kind of funny if you think about like, you know, what what components are necessary to make a HomePod mini versus to make a MagSafe battery pack. The profit margin has got to be so much higher on the MagSafe battery pack (laughs) than on the HomePod mini. Um, But, you know, the prices are not set based on, you know, what's a fair markup on our costs? No, it's all psychological. It's what can we get away with? And and they can get away with this because it's an accessory and accessories are always very overpriced and we buy them anyway for reasons although this honestly you know i'm sure we'll get to this in a second but this i i think this is going to have an even smaller appeal than the previous smart battery cases have well i mean we'll see so there, this is not the first product that's in the market there have been third-party ones that have been out since these phones came out apple is late to the market here one example is the 50 dollar anchor thing which basically looks the same as the Apple one. It's a rectangle you stick on the back of your phone with MagSafe. It costs half the price. It has a larger capacity battery. Um, It doesn't do reverse charging. Um, And, of course, uh, you can't because Apple is mean with their APIs. Third-party ones can't show the the battery level in the the system UI like the Apple one can, which is kind of annoying. They should just make an API for that. Um, So what do you get? For your double the price and less battery power, oh, yeah, it's a little bit slimmer. It's a little bit lighter. It looks apple I guess if you want white, that's the only color you can get, so you're happy then. Um, it's But it's basically the same story as any Apple versus third-party accessory. Apple's accessories, like look at their leather cases or literally any accessory for any of their products, they're pretty nice, and they always cost more than competitors, uh, competitors' products do, and they have higher margins, and Apple doesn't have to pay itself whatever the MFI program requires all those other people to pay to work so you know what else is new um one question you may be asking about the magsafe battery pack is like well when i had a battery case it was around the whole phone right but this battery pack it just sticks on with a magnet and i'm supposed to just hold these two bars of soap i guess like and just like if i shift my hands does one shoot off or like if i shake my phone does the battery pack go flying off like it's they're not actually connected with anything other than the magnetic force and like the 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 friction that's that's uh what is it doing the friction is helping so that only the sandwich closing force is uh is, is an issue i suppose you can't so to keep it from sliding sideways it's got like a soft rubber on the back of it so the best thing we have here since people don't have this yet is matt panzerino posted a video of him trying shaking his phone with the anchor magsafe battery pack on it 
and it looks like it sticks on pretty well. Again, we established in the past shows that like that you can for, with the magnetic car mounts, you can put some powerful magnets in the thing you're sticking on, and that will really make the connection pretty strong. So I'm hoping and assuming that Apple's is at least as uh, sticky as this Anchor one. So hopefully this won't be much of a problem. Like all these things and like the magnetic wallet attachment, if you have super tight jeans and you try to jam this thing in your jeans pocket and, and the battery pack is, you know, gets caught on the lip of the thing and you keep pressing your phone, yeah, you're going to pop off the battery pack. But don't do that. Maybe get, you know, jeans with bigger pockets, which I know it's not easy, especially <laughs> in women's jeans. The world is not fair. Um, and in terms of capacity, like there's a trade-off between capacity, weight, size, all that other stuff. But the this Apple's product... This is uh, Quinn Nelson doing some estimates on based just on the specs of what it's going to do. Uh, his estimate, assuming a 70% efficiency for, for charging, which, as he says, is generous. I think most sort of MagSafe charging type things are maybe more closer to 50% efficiency. Yeah, Qi is not great. Yeah, if you're wondering where that other 30 to 50% of energy is going, heat which is not great for your battery anyway or your pocket it's like if you're gonna have this in your pocket like there's a reason why we don't do a lot of chi charging of things in our pockets while they're in there like mm-hmm. it's just just heating up our pants the whole time that's why five watts is better than 15 watts because at least you're spreading the heat out over a more period of time anyway um maybe it will charge an iphone 12 mini from zero to 91 percent Maybe it will charge an iPhone 12 or 12 Pro to 72% and a 12 Pro Max to 55%. These are just estimates, again, based on the milliamp hour ratings of the battery. Um, So, yeah, it's better than nothing. But as always, you do have to choose how much extra weight and bulk do you want versus how much battery power do you want. I don't think there's any massive difference in the uh, energy density of the lithium-ion batteries that Apple is using versus what Anchor is using. so there you go. Uh, it's a battery pack. Uh, like Casey said, I think it's great that in theory, no promises, you'll be able to use the same battery pack with your phone next year and maybe the year after, maybe the year after, right up until Apple, you know, invalidates this by making a new MagSafe design or something, which is way better than having to buy a new one of these cases every single year. Um, and it looks pretty neat and it's a very Apple product. And I think the people who want something like this will be happy with it, but they'll probably also be happy with a $50 Anchor version. So... Indeed. Now, this looks really good. I'm too cheap to have bought one yet, but I probably will at some point. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in this. I think the other reason I haven't bought one is because when am I ever going anywhere for the, for the most part? Yeah, that's the reason I haven't bought one is like I'm thinking like, all right, between now and when the next phones come out, am I actually going anywhere? Oh, speaking of Marco, though, like that, that was a question I had. That I haven't really seen answered. I suppose I just could have looked at the measurements. So this works on any phone that has MagSafe, which I guess means that it has to be small enough to fit on Marco's little baby phone. Yeah, if you look at Apple's <laughs> if you look at the Apple product page, it shows it on um, on all four iPhone 12 models. Um, so and it, it looks like you know like every other MagSafe accessory Apple sells, it is exactly the full width of the 12 mini. Mm. And it rests like right below the camera bump. So I'm guessing it is sized specifically to be compatible with the mini and and like the height is limited by like how far how close can we get to the camera blob without yeah. it being visible in the shots that you take with the camera. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Because like they could make a bigger battery, especially on the Max, right? You could have a bigger battery pack of the same thickness or a thinner battery pack of the same size. Like there's lots of different trade-offs you can make in terms of how it feels in your hand, how much of the phone sticks out past the battery pack. Obviously this is, you know, if it's sized for the mini, they just made one for all the phones. 
Um, and that's just Apple being Apple and the, you know, why make three different products when you can just make one and just size it to the smallest one. But I can see some people maybe being disappointed, especially on the middle size. Like if it was sized for the middle one, uh, maybe it would be okay on the max because the max has such a big battery built in. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is gonna, maybe this will be enough, another excuse that Apple will use, uh, in two years to get rid of the mini. Yeah, I mean, because if you look at, at the design of MagSafe in general, everything MagSafe is limited by the size of the Mini. Even, like, the, the main circle radius that is, like, the main MagSafe circle, that's limited by the size of the Mini, too. And so if the Mini wasn't there, which, I again, I like the Mini, so I hope they don't do this, although I think they will. If the Mini gets eliminated, they could theoretically then make a future, like, you know, MagSafe Plus or something that MagSafe Max, uh, that is a little bit bigger and therefore would be stronger, would be able to deliver more current. Like there's actually some good reasons why they might want to do that. Um, but I, I love my mini. I hope they don't. And I hope some third parties come up with one. So I just found the picture. I'm looking at it on the max on, on the max. It looks kind of lost there. Like I, I imagine this is a third party opportunity. If a third party wants to make a max size battery pack, it could be a lot bigger, right? There's a lot of room, especially vertically uh, on the max to make a bigger battery pack. It doesn't look so bad in the middle, like the regular 12 and 12 pro. But I feel like, you know, so remember when Apple came out with the battery pack that looked like just a regular case, but then it has a rectangular plateau in the middle of it? That's what these remind me of. And, you know, it depends on what you want the thing to feel like in your hands. Some battery cases have historically been more like the the Apple, the, the iPhone 3GS, like where it's just like a lump from edge to edge. And if you like that hand feel, you want a battery pack that feels like that. But Apple's is more like you feel the edge of the phone and then on the back of the phone is a lump, Right. I guess it depends on what you like in terms of hand feel, but also I think it influences the sliding of the phone into a pocket, uh, you know, a tight pocket in your pants or whatever. If it's a smoother transition between the edges, it's less likely the thing will catch, which is even an issue when it wasn't magnetically attached and it was just a lump, right? Versus the 3GS shape would sort of smile, uh, smoothly slide in. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually really curious to see people start reviewing these when they get actual things to you know you know they're going to do the, the pocket slide in test for sure and the shake test like panzer did with the uh the anchor i think probably one of you should buy this just so we can talk about it on the show more <laughs> not it oh oh it's like that <laughs> you know it's going to be me then casey's never going to buy it <laughs> well it's sized for your phone marco i know my phone needs it the most <laughs> yeah, exactly that's what i'm gonna say you should just put it on there all the time <laughs> no and what I, what i like about the magsafe being used for this way is that you know unlike unlike a battery case like typically a battery case once you put it on you're like well i'm just going to carry it around like this for for either indefinitely forever uh, until the edges start peeling off or like for this entire trip i'll just leave this on whereas the magsafe you can so easily pop it on and off without having to like take a whole case off the phone you could theoretically just leave it off the phone but have it like in your bag ready to go for if you need it and then if later in the day you need it, just pop it on for a while, and then you can pop it off when you're done super easily, like way more easily than a case. Yeah, it's, it's super versatile. And the fact that it's a charger, like, I mean, you know, it is, it is designed so that it will look reasonable on your desk as a charger. It's like it will lay flat. Like, if you look at it, you might be wondering which is the top and which is the bottom. Like, is this a charger that's just on my desk, or is it a battery pack? It's both. It's, it's nice. Um, and the other thing about it is, like, with all of the case ones, because they were cases and because MagSafe didn't exist, 
uh, I suppose they could have done this before, but anyway, like like Casey said, they generally plugged into the lightning port, which meant they inevitably made your phone taller than it was because you need some part of it to kind of tuck around under your phone and plug into the lightning port, and then it would have to have its own lightning port offset from that that you would plug into. This has none of those problems. It doesn't make your phone any taller. It just sticks on the back. It does have its own port in the battery itself, but it doesn't sort of change the dimensions of your phone vertically or horizontally, which is nice. Yeah, I can definitely see myself picking one of these up before my next trip whenever that happens like it might be like you know next spring or something maybe i'll have the iphone 13 mini at that point and i'll have another small battery to to top off but but like i i'm not going to jump on this right this second because i just don't have a need for it but uh certainly if i needed a battery pack for my current iphone i'd get this one no question because it, like the way it can double the charger and everything that's really nice i you know i even thought like i could just keep it on my desk most of the time because i have a lightning cable here for development i could just like have that be my charger on my desk who knows right there's lots of reasons why i might want one but um it, we'll, we'll see down the road like whenever it actually whenever I actually need that then i'll buy it july 27 through 29 you jerks yeah <laughs> you got one <laughs> nice uh, so i will let you know please do was it white mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it happened white. to be white. I, I, it, it, does, it did happen to be white. I honestly would have chosen black over white if I had the choice. <laughs> I had no other no choice. Question. It had to be white. It had to be white. I had no <laughs> choice. It happens. I wanted to, uh, as we were talking about this, I thought this might be a good excuse for a kind of like state of MagSafe topic you know like we're we're almost a year into iphone magsafe this we're not gonna be talking about the old you know macbook charging thing this is just about iphone magsafe <laughs> the old the old macbook charging thing which may become the new macbook charge right yeah <laughs> right <laughs> yeah possibly very soon but anyway so i wanted to you know just kind of review like how is magsafe doing you know so are are we using it uh you know how how what's it good at what's it not so good at you know a year in um so i'll start i I use it for all of my bedside charging, and I even have those incredibly expensive, like flip open, like little MagSafe wallet things that charge the phone and the watch for when we go uh, upstate to uh, our our family's place up there. It's been pretty good. I've been pretty happy with it. Oh, and I also have it in my car. I, I believe I've mentioned that on the show. Uh, I converted over my ProClip USA car mount from the old Lightning one to the new uh, MagSafe one. And so I'm using MagSafe pretty much all the time my phone is being charged, except when it's at my desk and I plug it in for Xcode uh, development. But otherwise, like that, that, that's the only Xcode debugging is the only reason I'm plugging it into Lightning. Everything else now for my phone is MagSafe. And I have found it to be pretty good uh, i did mention when i mentioned the car um magsafe charging that heat and charging speed in the car are not great and it is able to keep up with the phone like running waves and gps with the sun shining on it but it is not able to charge it very quickly if it's not super high to begin with um, and occasionally the, the the screen has to dim too because it's so hot it can't even show the screen at full brightness but that's i haven't had that happen since then I, I really am glad that I have a car that's nice and has CarPlay, so I don't have to worry about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, Just throwing that out there, Marco. Another day. <laughs> so uh, in the car, I have found it to be incredibly convenient, so, so it is worth those shortcomings of charging speed. Um, as a like bedside, every-night charging thing, uh, I think I mentioned before how I use... Uh, double-sided uh, suction tape 
on the bottom of Apple's MagSafe puck as my bedside charger. Which is interesting. I think today, I think Elevation Lab just announced uh, uh, kind of like a stick-on MagSafe holder. Well, I basically have been doing this for a year. Just I just bought this, the, that microsuction tape and stuck it on the bottom of Apple's thing and stuck it on my nightstand. And it's it's held for a year. A few inches away from that, I have an Apple Watch charger that's held the same way. Uh, and every night, I, I stick the Apple Watch charger on its thing and I slide the iPhone onto its thing and it's fine. Um that being said, the ways in which this is this I think could use improvement besides you know the the heat and charging speed in the car being a bit of an issue. It, for me, it's still a little hard to align the phone onto the MagSafe puck to to really line it up so it snaps into place. Like it takes a little bit more like wiggling around like re- as I'm reaching over like trying to put it on the nightstand. I'm trying to go to sleep and I'm a little tired. I gotta like kind of move it around to like to before it like snaps on. Um, so that. I think could use some improvement. I don't know if it's reasonably possible to do that much better. Like you just be the reality of magnets. Like it, it might not be reasonably practical or possible to improve that very much, but I've got a, I've got a solution for you that doesn't require Apple to redesign things. Uh, you, what you just need is a frame, like a four corner frame, the size of your mini. Cause then you would just be like, you know what I mean? Like getting a rectangle into like a shape sorter size type hole. Like you just get it into the rectangular frame and you don't care about the magnet being aligned because once you get it into the frame, you know it's aligned, right? The problem with the MagSafe thing is there's no borders. It's just like, oh, you have a surface and I, I you have a circle and I have a circle and you just have to line them up and there's, <laughs> you never know when you went past it or gone too far. You just kind of have to wiggle it around. Right? That's the frame, even in your sleepy set. Now, it would be less elegant and it would be less nice looking, but I can imagine. Oh, it would are, be hideous looking. I would never do it. There are third party chargers out there that probably do give you essentially like a soap dish for your phone. And obviously the limitation is now you have to size it to your phone. And when you get a different size phone, you got to have a different size soap dish. But that is one sort of mechanical solution to this is just, you know, you can even make it like a soap dish with slanted sides. So you can just kind of like shove your phone over and it would just kind of slip into it because it's got some curved sides to it. Um, it's, you know, you could, you're the one uh, pulling out the, uh, the microsuction tape. So if you want to have an arts and crafts project, you can start making a little, uh, <laughs> little corral for your phone. <laughs> Yeah, the difference is that when I'm done with the suction tape, you don't see anything except the charging puck. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so that I think could use some improvement. Um and the other the other thing which also applies to the um battery backpack thing, right now Apple has multiple different charging standards going on. We we have you know, we you have first of all USB C versus Lightning. So you you have devices like iPads that can only charge via USB C unless they're certain models, in which case they only charge via Lightning. Then you have phones that we've had Qi for a while, great, and you can use a MagSafe charger to charge any Qi compatible iPhone, even the ones before. They just you you know, gotta like you know play with alignment a bit, and it'll be limited to either five or seven watts. I don't know which one they went with on that, but you know so but we you know we have AirPods. We have Apple Watches, we have iPads. The MagSafe charger seems like it was an opportunity to maybe start unifying some of these things, and they didn't take that opportunity. Especially, I think, where it's especially egregious is the Apple Watch. I wish MagSafe could charge Apple Watches as well. And I don't necessarily know that I would replace every Apple Watch charger with a you know, larger MagSafe puck, but it would be nice if you happen to only have one of those things with you, or if you happen to only have one of those things free at the current moment, it would be nice to be able to charge an Apple Watch on a MagSafe puck. 
Um, so besides that weirdness. Well, uh, before we move on from the Apple Watch, I think I've been thinking about this. I was thinking exactly the same thing just the other day, looking at watch chargers and stuff like that, that it's, it's so annoying that you have to have the separate watch charger. But I think given the current design of the Apple Watch, which I assume is not arbitrary with like the domed bottom sensor that presses into your skin to do all the measurements, like I think it's important for that to be domed. With the dome like that, I don't think it's feasible or maybe advisable to have a perfectly flat surface charging the domed watch. You know what I mean? Because I don't think you could get close enough to contact the parts that you need to contact. You know, because the farther you are away, the farther you separate like the coil, the two coils from each other or whatever from charging, the worse it is in terms of efficiency. And at a certain point, it just doesn't work. And especially with a dome type thing where it can wiggle around, I kind of think that the little domey indent part of the watch charging is essential. Now, I get what you're saying about the charging standard, but if you really want it to be standardized, you know they have to be flat for the phones because it's not like they're going to put little domes on the back of the phones. And so you're yeah, going to have like to have the, the flat chargers bump. for the phones. Uh, yeah, I guess I can make the camera bump into the the charging Boy, bump but, or something. I mean, could, could they theoretically have a little domed cutout in the middle of the MagSafe charger? Yeah, yeah, but I, I, yeah, maybe. Like, every, but I feel like once you have that cutout, that moves the coils in the center farther away from the phone, which doesn't have a dome that's sticking out. Like, I don't know. I, I, this is are there coils in the center? Or are they? Do they form a big circle around the perimeter? I think they kind of go all the way around, like uh, crop circle things. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I what I'm saying is, I this is all based on the assumption that the dome on the watch is not arbitrary, and I, I, I believe my, my my guess, if I had to put money, I would say it's not arbitrary. That it actually is kind of important to have that dome there because it has to press into your skin for this for all those sensors to work well. And if you made the bottom of the watch flat it would be worse or maybe not work at all. Um, so I kind of see where they might have some kind of limitation. But everything else you said is totally true. Like, it's just it's just kind of an accident of history of, like, when these devices came out, and somewhat the watch, too. Like, they weren't all released at the same time. They weren't all conceived at the same time. And so now here we are with all these different standards. Less of an excuse for the iPads, which probably should all be USB-C by now, but, you know, Tim Cook likes to sell those same designs for years and years. So we'll, we'll eventually get there. Um, but it is... The watch is the worst one, I think mostly because, like, at least Apple's watch. Does anyone third-party sell watch chargers? I don't even know. I don't. So there are a few battery packs that have, like, an Apple Watch thing off to the side, and they look like it's it's Apple's part just shoved in there. Yeah. Like, it doesn't – I haven't seen anything that looks noticeably different, uh, like, with a different finish or different color or anything like that. Like, so it seems like there there is an MFI program for that, but it seems like it's – not used very much see also magsafe right that's and that's even that's you know a bigger problem with magsafe too is like there i don't know if the mfi program is actually going yet. i know they announced one i don't know if, i don't know if there's actually like like magsafe stuff being developed under the mfi program but i haven't seen any it, it i don't think any of it's actually out yet um and it, this seems like a huge third-party opportunity that's just not being used the worst part of the watch charger is the attached cable, though. I feel like if Apple started selling just the little watch little thingy, like if they had sort of a little, you know, constructor set of charging things, and this was kind of like, well, you have the cable, and then you have the thing you attach it to, and you could attach it to the flat puck, or you could attach it to the watch puck. Uh, but, you know, Apple's penchant for attaching the cable permanently, too. Like, I was just looking at a picture of a keyboard the other day, and we're thinking about, you realize that Apple t- permanently attaches the keyboard to its wired yeah, the, does it no am, am i misremembering like doesn't is the wired apple a flat aluminum keyboard have, have a, the cable permanently attached to one and i think it mm-hmm. does right yep it absolutely does anyway 
it's it's such a limitation because you know travel like you're saying with the, you know any, any kind of thing where you're like oh, let me just get my charging stuff to always have that absolute one-off unitasker and uh you know good eats parlance watch charger that is inseparable attached to its cable which is either way too long or way too short depending on the context you want to use it versus having a somewhat unified charging infrastructure that you could all label as magsafe where you had like pucks or landing domes or dishes and then you had bricks and then you had cables all sold separately apple should love it <laughs> yeah so for me i do use chi charging uh the only time i plug in my phone for the most part is occasionally carplay that's this thing marco where your phone appears on your car's infotainment system it's really nice you should check it out sometime mm. uh so I, I plug it in for carplay occasionally because now i have that dongly thing that i use for short trips i'll only usually plug it in for longer trips uh, I'll plug it in for CarPlay, plug it in for development, and that's usually it. On my bedside table, I have Qi charging. I do not have MagSafe. So this MagSafe battery pack that I ordered five, ten minutes ago will be my first true-to-form MagSafe device. And I'm looking forward to trying it. But uh, that'll be it. But I'm all in on Qi. I, I definitely use Qi all over the place. I just uh, I don't have any MagSafe yet. Yeah, I'm not. I, the wireless charging hasn't really connected with me. Uh, like I, I did buy the MagSafe puck when I got my MagSafe phone, but it just never was never a thing that I wanted to do. I did. I didn't want to suction it down when it wasn't suctioning it down. It felt too slippy. It just doesn't didn't fit into the way I have things on my bedside. So I've got the puck there on my bedside, and like I said, I just put my AirPods on it. Like that's <laughs> that's all I do. And even the AirPods, I still feel a little bit of like. It's not really empathy for the machine, but it's empathy for thermodynamics, whatever the hell. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't like the idea of it being less efficient and also potentially producing heat that could shorten the life of any of my batteries. Now, it's probably fine. Like, that, it doesn't actually get that warm. But every time I pick my AirPods off the little the little charging puck and they, like, the case feels warm or I take out the AirPods and they feel warm from being inside, I'm like, that's not great. They don't feel hot. It's just... I don't know. I don't really care about the AirPods because the battery is so small and they charge so fast. But everything else, I just plug my stuff in still, uh, which I also don't like because, you know, we have so many lightning devices in this house and so many kids. Well, too, so many. Um, and I look at the little lightning connectors and you see the little brown marks from like scorching or whatever that is. Yeah, like that one pin that shorts out from charging uh, yeah i don't know if it's it's shorting or it's corroding but like it, it just go after the show go look at all the lightning uh cables in your house and look at the little tiny connectors and see do they all look uniformly shiny gold with no discoloration or do one or two of them have little dark brown smudges on them uh and when i plug in i always try to pick like the good of, of the 17 cables that are there pick the good one with the least of the scorch marks because i don't <laughs> want that sort of infecting my beautiful phones and even on my nightstand, my kids charge their crap on my nightstand, too, because my cables are always nice and are always available and don't have scorch marks. Anyway, I still prefer wired mostly just because it charges faster, it charges more efficiently, you know, all those reasons. And I don't mind plugging it in. And speaking of things that I can do in the night without, you know, fidgeting around, I'm surprisingly good at getting a USB-C or a lightning connector into the appropriate little place on phones and ipads in complete darkness you know it's a, <laughs> i think most people are pretty good at it by the way if you ever struggle with that and you're like oh it's so hard i feel like i'm scraping up the bottom of my phone i can't find the little thing the trick is uh because you're human and your uh, mind body connection is used to dealing with objects in space take your take you have the cable in one hand let's say your right hand take your left hand feel for the little hole with like your finger or thumb along the, the bottom of the device like feel for where the hole is with your thumb 
and then just take your right hand, don't think about it, just take your right hand and stick it into the, the thing that your left hand just felt. If you overthink it, you're just going to miss again. But just just trust me when I tell you, if you have good, what is it, proprioception or whatever, and most people do, uh, feel for the little hole and then just stick it in where you felt the hole. You don't have to do any sort of weird, oh like, oh, I'll move my thumb out of the way at the last second. I swear to you, just feel for the hole and stick it in the hole and it'll work oh great. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't handle this. I know. Anyway, um, I do that, and I can do it in complete darkness, so I haven't had a need for a wireless charger. So I'm not sure when I'll come around on the wireless thing. I w- at this point, I would be kind of upset if they, you know, the, the rumors of the, you know, wireless charging only iPhone. I'd get over it. It would be fine. But just my whole setup is predicated on kind of a stack of devices. I feel like iPad, iPhone, you know, the, the my AirPods, all this stuff kind of stacked up with all these cables snaking up and they just all plug into the bottom of the devices. Um, you can't really stack them with wireless unless you do, sort of do a sandwich layering where you do like device, charger, <laughs> device, or actually charger, device, charger, device, charger, device. I don't want that stack. Um, so I'll be sad when the, when the wires, if, if and when the wires go away someday. But for now, I'm pretty dedicated to wires. Yeah, I, I like having wired as an option. Like if I, if I need to like fast charge for some reason, mm-hmm. it's great for that. Um, obviously, I mentioned you know Xcode development where you want as much speed as you can get uh, and as much liability as you can get. It's great for that. I especially love like the like you mentioned the kid case. Kid devices are treated a little more roughly than many adults treat their devices. And a problem that we have had in our household, I mentioned on the show before about um, my kid's iPad Mini, and the iPad Mini charge port seems to have a, a flaw. Like, I've heard from multiple people that, like, the current generation iPad Mini, and even the one before it, I think, it just has, like, a bad logic board design flaw where the the uh, lightning connector apparently just, like, torques itself off the board in even regular use over time. Certainly with kid use, that's that's going to be accelerated, and that has been the case for us. We've already had to do an Apple Care replacement during the lifetime of the current iPad Mini. And in that kind of context, like, I would love an iPad Mini case that plugged into the 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 lightning port and just had a big chi coil on the back of it and then i could just turn it into a wirelessly charged ipad now you know that's not going to fix the case where he's using it as it's sitting there at two percent and all of a sudden oh crap i have to charge and you know (laughs) he wants to keep using it during charging like that's not going to be great for that but just to have less wear and tear on the port that would be great and that's where like i love in, in my current, you know, all wireless charging or mostly wireless charging lifestyle, it's great never to have to, like, pick pocket lint out of the lightning port to get, get it to charge right or never to have to worry about, like, am I am I wearing down those pins, uh, never having that that one pin that's, like, you know, the, the one that always gets slowly charred and, and blackened over time as crap builds up on it. Like, it's great to not have to worry about that or and to save so much wear and tear on the port. So if you're in a context where that's important, like kid devices, I would just love to see more options like that. So for me, like bring on MagSafe for iPad Mini especially. That would be amazing. Or for any iPad, frankly. Like that would that would be a pretty strong factor in me buying whatever's next for my kid. Yeah, I feel like wired connect uh, charging, especially as the device size goes up, is just so much more convenient because you don't need a big flat surface to sort of mate with your thing. Like especially we have like one of those sort of uh, folder filing cabinet kind of charging things where you can put a bunch of iPads vertically. Yeah. Uh, and that wouldn't, that wouldn't work with wireless unless you had these big giant fins because there's just these little fins where you put them in the slots and then connect them with the wires. Um, and if, that's that, what you mentioned about the, the cable. Aside from kids like 
using their devices with the cable attached and destroying the cables, A, because there's bad strain relief because kids are monsters, but B, also like just <laughs> pulling on the thing and torquing it in the design flow and a little uh, scorching and everything like that. And you mentioned pulling lint out of the things. I have to say that for my personal devices, having used Lightning since it existed in, in many, many devices, none of those little scorch pins have ever caused any problems. Like I've literally never had a cable that stopped working. I've never needed to pick lint out of any of my Lightning ports ever. And none of them have ever failed to work or broke over time. Now, granted, I'm very gentle with my devices, so it doesn't say these things don't happen. All, but I'm just saying that my paranoia about the scorch marks and displeasure with all the stuff happening, practically speaking, it hasn't actually caused a problem in my very careful usage. But I do know many other people who do have that problem. And this is probably, I think we mentioned this in past shows, probably why Apple is even interested in a connectorless iPhone is just to eliminate all the people coming into the Apple store saying, my thing doesn't charge anymore and then having them to go in there with little dental tools and pull out the little lint like that's it's not a design flaw but it is a weakness of having any kind of plug uh, as you know and the phones are thin you can't really fit a giant beefy plug on there because you know they're small phones right so something has to give at some point and i think all wireless is probably inevitable and i'll understand it when it happens but for now i'm still going with the wires oh they better fix xcode anyway thank you to our sponsors this week Linode, Memberful, and Burrow. And thanks to our members who support us directly. You can join us at atp.fm slash join. And we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Armin S I R A C. USA Syracuse, it's accidental. So, Casey, I know that you're working on an app. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've had some motivational challenges <sighs> after working on the Apple Watch component. Yeah. You are not alone. Everybody who has ever developed an Apple Watch app has generally run screaming from, from the process. And <laughs> it is extremely demoralizing, extremely frustrating. And just a massive slog that just crushes your soul and makes you never want to be a software developer again. <laughs> but I'm also here to tell you that because watchOS is such an incredibly hostile and limited environment for apps to run in, most people don't expect perfection on the Apple Watch. <laughs> and also, you can't achieve it anyway. That's true. You do what you can to give an okay watch experience for most people most of the time, that's going to be the best you can achieve. And so you have to just decide at some point, like, all right, this, I've reached a plateau. At this point, I'm just banging my head against the wall. 
I'm not getting made, you know significantly better, or the platform won't let me get significantly better past this point. I will just consider this acceptable and move on. It is not you being a bad developer. It is not the world of software development telling you that you shouldn't even bother doing it anymore because other lots of other things do that. I mean, if if you want that kind of feeling, try you know doing web development. <laughs> but in this case, the Apple Watch is a terrible software development platform. It is made to be as punitive and awful to iOS developers as possible. It will represent a massive part of your negative reviews, by far the most crash logs, and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about that. And so you just have to kind of set it aside and and just accept, like, this is going to be a source of problems for me and my customers, but I'll do the best I can. It's it's In a way, it's very, very zen-like. <laughs> Right. So I feel I feel like I need I need my support group. And for the listeners particularly, I think I should back up a smidge in at least obliquely talk about what I'm building. So months and months and months ago, I noticed Erin doing some arithmetic with regard to something on her phone and her watch. And I can't get too specific, but it was about health things. And I started doing this and I was like, what are you doing? And she explained. And I was like, well, why? I could like, I can fix this, you know, like, I have the technology, I can do this. And so the core of this app, which I'm tentatively calling Goaltender, uh, the core of Goaltender is to do a little bit of arithmetic and give you like a status report. And that's really all it is. And on the surface, that's like a week or two worth of work. I'm on like month eight or something like that. And part of it is because I've just been deeply unmotivated because of all things COVID. But now that, you know, our family, you know, the, the adults are vaccinated and the kids are slowly starting to reenter society, I'm starting to feel better about work, or I was starting to feel better about work in general. Uh, and I'm starting to get out, actually get some real work done. And I am incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged that I can like coast on this for months and not have been fired and not have, you know, put myself in dire financial straits. Like, I, I I recognize that if I had an actual job, I would have been fired long ago, and it would have been a real honest-to-goodness problem. So anyway, so I've been working on this all, way too long, and I already feel guilty about that, right? And so I've heard my imposter syndrome is already, like, you know, peeking around the corner saying, hey, man, hey, remember me? Hey, what you been doing the last eight months? Oh, nothing? Geez, maybe it's because you suck. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Um, Harsh. So, so that that's that's you know in the back of my mind already, and the app again being at least slightly oblique, the app needs at least a month worth of health data to do the arithmetic it needs to in, in it needs to do. I wrote pretty much all of it, I thought, and then I was noticing that the data was wrong on the watch app. So, not I'm not talking about complications or anything. I'm just talking about the watch app which is super duper simple and, and was working actually reasonably quickly because I was just reusing Swift UI views that I was using in the iOS app in the watch, which is great. Like that's, that's when Swift UI is good. And it took a little, you know, tweaking here and there, but by and large, it was relatively multi-platform. So that was great. But then I realized I was dropping data. I didn't know why. And then come to find out the watch only has 10 days of health data. Oh, for the first 10 days of the month, it works great. And after that, it's a mess. <laughs> so now I'm in a situation where I only have all the data I need on my phone. In order to get the data to the watch, it needs to come from the phone. 
which means what am I now relying on 100% for the watch, Marco? Watch connectivity. Oh, yeah, baby. And it is a nightmare. It is a (laughs) nightmare. A thousand percent supported. I cannot overstate how much of a nightmare it is. There are not enough curse words in the English language. Challenge accepted. (laughs) To properly classify how it is to work with watch connectivity. So now my entire app, even the even the watch app. So I'm going to get to why I keep specifying, you know, between the differences. But but I'm having major issues with my complications. My complications are complicated, and, and that's a big 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 problem. But even the watch app, which is not, which is almost entirely under my control. Like yes, the API is weird. Yes, you know, SwiftUI is weird in its own right. But by and large, I don't have a lot of excuses on the watch app. That is entirely un, under my control uh, with modern watch development. It was not. It was not that easy, well, easy, quote unquote easy, when Marco started doing watch development. But for me, it's I don't have too much to complain about, at least on the surface, with regard to just straight up watch development. But once you sprinkle in watch connectivity, it's a nightmare. So why is it a nightmare? Well, first of all, you can't really test on the simulator because some of the things are implemented in the simulator, both the iOS and watch simulator. Some of them just plain aren't. And that's not a joke. Like you can, I'm not going to find this for the show notes, but you can look in the documentation and legitimately in the documentation, it says, well, just don't try this thing in the simulator because we didn't, didn't friggin' bother. Just don't. And, and there's all sorts of weirdness with the watch simulator and watch connectivity framework in particular. Like I think what it's trying to do is insert little arbitrary delays in any watch connectivity communication between your simulated phone and simulated watch app to try to simulate watch communication in real life being sometimes delayed. But the result of that is that oftentimes watch connectivity communication in the simulator just never gets delivered, uh, which actually, I guess, is a fair simulation of what (laughs) happens in real life. But it, it makes it nearly impossible to do substantial development in the simulator for any any apps that communicate between the watch and phone apps. Bingo. Okay, so now I've backed myself into like a corner within a corner. So so first of all, even though HealthKit APIs do exist on the watch, it'll only work for the first 10 days of the month. So that's a non-starter. So I already need watch connectivity. I, it's not optional. I need watch connectivity in order to get the data I need onto onto the watch. And then beyond that, I'm doing all of this stuff with HealthKit data. And that is, of all the APIs that Apple has, of all the ones I've worked with, and I've at least glanced off the outer atmosphere of most API, like most of the higher level APIs. Like I haven't done any of that crazy stuff with like matrix math that you're doing, Marco, but I'm talking about the high level APIs. I've glanced off the outer atmosphere of most of them. And a lot of them, have legitimately good like test harnesses or things you can do like location services is a great example like you can put in i believe it's a gpx log it doesn't matter if i get the details wrong but you can basically put in a log and tell the simulator go ahead and use this to simulate like a car driving you know which is the sort of thing you want well with healthkit it's like good luck like if you really want you can put the simulator onto your legitimate iCloud account your actual iCloud account, and it will sync up all the health data and then just hope for the best, (laughs) which is not really a great option. And then there are people that have done like open source things to extract and then import health data, but I couldn't get any of them to work. And the one I found that looked most promising used CocoaPods. And with respect to anyone who likes or uses or wrote CocoaPods, CocoaPods, I hate it. (laughs) 
in any case, <laughs> I, I, I'm backed into one corner because I'm relying on health data that doesn't exist. Now, then on top of that, I'm relying on watch connectivity, which means I pretty much have to debug on device. Between these two things, I have to debug on device. I cannot reasonably describe how impossible and that I I use that word constantly as a as a, what is it hyperbole uh, I use that word not literally all the time it is not literally impossible but it is nearly impossible to get a watch app to debug successfully more than once in Xcode. I have tried everything. <laughs> I have tried I've tried rebooting everything. I've tried turning things off, turning things on. I've tried hooking up with a USB what A cable. I've tried hooking up with a USB C cable. Nothing fucking works. Nothing fucking works. Not a thing. And so at uh, now I've put myself in the situation the goaltender is at its core to Swift UI views. That's all it is. That's literally all it is. It's two views. Of course, there's a bunch of superfluous stuff around the outside. It's two views. That's all it is. And I've been working on this way too long, in part because I guess I'm a shitty developer, but in part because it's just all of this is infuriating. And I, I, I realize that Apple, Apple does incredible work in so many ways. And some of Apple's best work f w uh, targeted at developers is when they're living in the same world we are, when they are, as we like to say, dog fooding. Apple very clearly does not dog food watch development like we do. And I've spoken to some birdies within Apple who have confirmed that they have fancy little cases with fancy physical harnesses where they have fancy physical fucking connections to their watches. So they don't have to worry about all the things we do. In the defense of Apple, it is kind of a miracle that you can debug-ish a watch. That's, oh, that's the other thing. <laughs> like, can you? Of, well, yeah. So anytime I've successfully gotten a debugging session insofar as I'm seeing log messages arrive in Xcode, as soon as I interrupt, execu interrupt execution and attempt to step to the next line... Oh, forget it. It's over. It, it's done. It's all yeah. over. Nothing <laughs> you happens. Can't, you can't use breakpoints on the watch. Forget right. it. Nope, 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 nope. So... I looked at Erin just a day or two ago. It might have been uh, two days ago, right before we recorded, actually. And she looked at me and was, you know, one of those things where your spouse just looks and knows something's not right. And she looked at me and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. I was, just, I was thinking about goaltender. And you know what it made me realize? I really don't like that part of my job. And, and I said that kind of be funny. But I got thinking about it. And sitting here today, right now, in the depths of despair, I really legitimately am not enjoying this portion of my job. I love the portion of my job where I talk to you two, even when you drive me nuts, which does happen, but I really don't like that portion of my job right now. And so there is probably an argument that I should just abandon this whole darn app in the first place. But now I've got some cost fallacy knocking on the other door behind me. You know, there, there was the imposter syndrome coming in door number one. Then there's some cost fallacy coming in door number two. And I really want this app to exist in the world. Whether or not another human being buys it, I'm lucky enough that I don't really need to worry about that. But I think it could be useful to some people. But at the rate I'm going, I feel like it's an insurmountable thing that I will never be able to get over. And and I and it makes me feel like, as much as I'm kind of being silly and goofy, it makes me feel like a piece of garbage. It makes me feel like I legitimately don't belong doing the job I'm doing because this doesn't seem like a terribly difficult thing 
to write. It is literally at its core two Swift UI views. Why is it this challenging? Oh, and then I, I keep putting off and didn't bring up. Then you've got to try to figure out complications on the watch. Oh, which, no. Which the AP, because this thing, it's too, like, it's kind of sort of two graphs, right? It's not literally graph, but you could call it a graph, I guess. It's basically two graphs, or, or gauges is a better way of putting it, I guess. Two gauges. And if I were a consumer, I would say, wow, this app is two gauges. Wouldn't it be sweet if I could put those gauges onto my watch face, which in and of itself is a completely reasonable request. And so that's the other tough thing about iOS development these days is that you start with an app that is two gauges. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this over and over again to sell myself short. Like, I do think there's value in this app. But if I'm really honest with myself, it's two gauges. And yet, then the next thing you know, well, you need a watch app because you might want to see your gauges on your watch. Well, then you need complications because you might want to see the gauges on your watch face. And of course, I started going down the road of and then kept getting distracted by the watch. What else are you going to need? Widgets. Because what if you want to see your gauges on your home screen? And so this little app that has started as two gauges is now spidering all into all these different technologies. And on the one side, I'm really glad, like even if I never release this, I am really glad that I'm, that I'm experiencing in, in more depth like watch development, watch connectivity, and complications and widgets. I am happy to be experiencing it more and more, but I feel like almost every step of this process has made me increasingly miserable. And if I was a smarter man, I would just walk away from the whole damn thing and try something new. So in summary, I would love for Apple to either dog food the stuff that they make us do or B, whatever like physical thing that they undoubtedly have that they can use to do the development that they do, I, at this point, I would pay them $110 billion for one of them so I can have one too. Because, oh my gosh, it's, it, it genuinely has made me hate my job. And that's, as much as I kind of joke about it, that's not a good place to be. No, and and there's multiple angles to this. I'll, I'll I'll try to tackle some of them in the time we have. So first of all, totally agreed. If they sold a wired development Apple Watch, I would pay a thousand dollars easily. Like so, <laughs> and, and I'd buy a new one every year just because it would be a little bit faster. Yep. Because yep. like you know, so you know, so listeners, if you've never tried to you know debug an app uh, or even just build and deploy and test an app on an Apple Watch. For me to do that with Overcast, it is, I think, about a three-minute long process every time I want to change anything. Suppose I want to run something on the watch, which, spoiler alert, audio is not well simulated in the simulator. Oh, go figure. Like, the way audio behaves, things like audio interruption handling, audio output handling, output routing, background handling of audio, almost none of that is correctly implemented in the, sim- in the simulator. So I have to do a lot of on-device testing. Sure enough, I'm going through the same crap of, like, all right, change something build and run try to figure out like like recently i had a problem of try to figure out why uh, audio interruption handling was not working correctly on my standalone watch playback when audio interrupts other audio on ios and the other audio has its volume reduced so you hear like the alert and then the volume goes back up that's called ducking Mm -hmm. in audio terms and so i have for years i've had a utility app called duck that just has a picture of a duck 
and it has <laughs> it has different buttons in the app for different time intervals. And when you click one of those time intervals, it plays that amount of time randomly picked from uh, Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells. And, and it's a way I test interruption handling in Overcast. Because you, you need a different app to interrupt the sound to test the audio handle the interruption handling on overcast so i went through the trouble of making a watch version of duck <laughs> during this last <laughs> few weeks <laughs> getting a little duck size icon for the watch version as well um and <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> and swift ui made this very easy by the way <laughs> thank god for swift ui because i'm telling you casey in the days of watch kit Oh my god, it was so much worse. Oh, I don't have it. Oh no, I, <laughs> so I know, and that's worse. the thing. That's the other thing. Like, I know that I am living the comparatively easy life compared to what you and like underscore went through. And actually, and that's the other thing. Like, how underscore has a single hair on top of his head, much less is actually legitimately successful at this? I have no idea. He must have. He's a Zen master. I, like, I, I, seriously, I, <laughs> I just I don't get it. He has. He he must be the most patient and persistent person I know that, for, same, to, to develop same. as much Apple Watch software as he does. Well, that's his disposition to begin with, and I am quite obviously the opposite of that. But still, <laughs> I mean, oh part, of, part of it is also experience. Where if you do, you know, this is your first watch app, and you know, this is Marco's fifth version of the same watch app. <laughs> 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 but uh, but listening to you talk about your your woes, Casey, and, and like, oh, it's only two Swift UI views, and like, I'm thinking like. It's it, you know, presumably like if you forgot about all the data and just put like hard coded fixture data in, you would have no problem making a complication, a widget, a watch app, because it's not like the part you're tripping over is, oh, I can't get my Swift UI view to render correctly. Mm-hmm. It's all about data flow. Right. And right. in the case of data flow, both in your case and in Marco's case, it's like, well, in your case, it's because you this is not your data. It's from the health APIs. And so you're at the mercy of the health APIs. And then you're at the mercy of the, the stupid watch connectivity UPI, APIs. Like if you could just get the data to where it needs to be, it's not like you're struggling over the rendering of it. And, Correct. you know, if you do, if you did something like, you know, little experimental watch faces where the only input is the time, there's no data flow and it's easy and probably relaxing and fun to do. And then in Marco's <laughs> case, he's dealing with system APIs because he's trying to play audio and he doesn't control the entire audio stack from top to bottom. There's other audio things that can go on. So he's got to handle when he's interrupted and when he's resuming. And then he's got his own data flow, which is probably better than dealing with HealthKit because at least he controls those APIs. Uh, but as evidenced by the seven versions of the watch app he's made, eventually he's just like, look, Apple, you are no longer involved in the data flow. I'm going to get it from the server myself because all the other ways I tried have been terrible. Oh, yeah. So like I'm not like this is, you know, you, both of your things are, terrible for reasons that are kind of predictable given the strengths and weaknesses of the watch and it just seems like if you had a simpler use case your own data or just the time or something simpler or like one the ones they do in the wwdc demo where it's like they they gloss over the part of where the data comes from and they just like look how great this is watch development is really easy like you just do this and you can put this you can use swift ui and put your views up and you do a timeline for the complication and, and it's just like assume that the data is already in available in these variables in your views it's like but that's the hard part like how does that data get there where does it come from does it have the correct values how do i make a fake set of it when it's complicated data you know all all that other stuff and that uh, the fabled uh, debugging thing would be great for you to figure out why the hell your data isn't getting there because you could finally debug, but in the end, your data isn't getting there. And the debugger would just sort of reveal the brokenness of the APIs versus you just, you know, wondering why it's broken. But what you really want is for 
to have a way to get the data. Like, say, for instance, in your case, Casey, that there wasn't the 10-day limit. You would not be suffering as much, right? Like, you'd, you'd do the complication, you'd do the widget, you'd do the thing, it would be like, oh, the data's just there, it's on the watch, I just, you know, render the views, and so... I feel I feel your pain, but it's not because like I don't I think you're just like Marco is you're just running into the worst of the sharp corners of the UI, and it's there's no amount of skill that's going to get you over other people's broken APIs. Yeah, and that's the funny thing is for the first ten days, it just so happened that I finished like the first cut of complications and and the watch app at on like the second day of maybe it was July, maybe it was June, whatever it was. It was like the second or third day of the month, and then after the tenth day, I realized my complications aren't updating or or something was wrong, and then I started digging and realized, oh oh my god, that the reason why <laughs> is because the data is not there. So like to your point, John. At the time, it seemed like, you know, something had gone awry where, but everything else up until that point was working great. And then it was only upon that limit being discovered that I realized, oh no, now everything is different. And now I've got to use watch connectivity. Like I was already lightly using it for a couple things, but I've got to really go all in on watch connectivity. And now I've got to pass all sorts of data back and forth and it's just a mess. So there are a few a few tips I can give you here. So number one, for debugging i already told you but i'll tell the listeners too if you use a USB-C to lightning cable for some reason that tends to work better like the one that goes to the phone that you know not even the one that goes to the watch is obviously because we can't have those the USB-C to lightning cable for some reason is more reliable and faster for me to debug i don't know why it's not USB 3 i don't i don't know what the reason is but that that is a thing for me as for the actual debugging process i i too can rarely get a debug session to work on the watch typically what happens is i hit build and run in xcode it takes about 90 seconds maybe where it's trying to install to watch like first it has to compile the app which is now you know because it's swift ui it takes forever (laughs) so eventually gets there compiles the whole rest of the app too the whole phone app and everything tries to install to watch sometimes that step succeeds Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just errors out with some like you know nonsense error that doesn't mean anything. Uh, sometimes it says it installed to watch, and then sometimes it says running, and it never runs. Occasionally, I will get it to actually run in the debugger through Xcode on the watch. Maybe one out of three or four runs, it will actually get that far. Oh, man, I would kill for that often. Oh my goodness, I would kill for it to be that often. And that takes like a good like, you know, two, three minutes. Like it's very, so so often it will take so long that I'll start doing something else on the computer and I'll and I'll look down and my, at my watch like f- 10, 15 minutes later and see, oh, it's running. Oh my God. And then I'll like jump back to Xcode and like take over the session. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's so slow to get to that point and, it's, and get there so rarely. Oh, and, and I've had the same experience with you. Like if you try to actually like set a breakpoint and try to either debug it by even just reading what a variable value is, or you know, trying you know, the, you know the PO to print an object or whatever, or try to do a step or step in or step out. Forget it. That breaks the session almost every time. Uh, so do, don't even bother with that. The best you can do is see live log messages. That being said, you can also use a custom logging framework or make your own, like I did. That's what I'm in the process of today, actually. But go ahead. Yeah, and then so what? What I do is I I have my own custom log framework, and I use I use in the, in the iOS app too um, that I log you know my own events to, and then I have in only my I have a code that checks for is user ID equals one. 
<laughs> then show a button in, in my watch setting screen that submits my log to my servers. And then I have a page on my server in my admin page that I can go look at my own damn watch log. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Hold on, though. It's, <laughs> I think it's important that we really pull on this thread for a minute. And, I, and I'm not trying to be funny. It is better and faster for you to write custom code to package up <laughs> log files and send them across the internet to a server under your control that is easier and more reliable than using the development environment that you are developing the app for this device with. By far. <laughs> it's not even close. <laughs> and that's and the, literally today, like you saw in a, in a Slack channel we're all part of, I was looking at, okay, how can I start, you know, collecting log information, writing it to a file. And then like, and my next step was going to be like uploading it somewhere, doing something with it. But my first step was like, let me collect all these logs and then I'll figure out how to put it somewhere. But I am writing my own logging system. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm sure listeners, there's some logging system that I should be using that is like open source or whatever. But, there's a million. It doesn't matter. I wrote my own too. But, but one way or another, I, I am cl- writing my own log system because it seems like that is the most reliable way for me to be able to tell what's going on for a brief window of time when it came to complications i was firing off i have uh, there's an app that uh, that i really like called pushover which i think i've mentioned in the past and what what it basically does is allow you to send pushes by like email or by an api call um, and i use it for some things like uh for example if i'm doing some long-running operation on my computer i have a a shell script where i can just say you know call the shell script with a message and it will send a push notification to my phone slash watch saying okay that thing is done so I was briefly, when I was debugging complications, using pushover to start sending myself push you know, notifications. Oh, such and such complication just got updated. Such and such other complication just got updated, et cetera, et cetera. I quickly got sick of that because it was happening a lot. But, <laughs> but my point is, that was the most reliable thing I could think of at the time in order to get myself better visibility into what's going on on the watch. Now, I do think, and I haven't looked into this, I think there's some like uh, a certificate or something you can put in that will get you an, the ability to use like console.app on your computer to start read reading logs coming off the watch, but I'm so skeptical. Oh, yeah, you can. It doesn't work. Okay, there you go. I'm so skeptical that it works that I didn't even really bother looking. At it. it works about as well as debugging. Like you can get it to work occasionally, Super. but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Stupid. I've, I've done that too. Don't worry. <laughs> that doesn't work either. No. So here, here's, how you, here's how you do watch development. First of all, you know, do. <laughs> Whatever coping mechanism you need to do afterwards, do whatever you need to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, first of all, yeah, write your own logs to your own thing and somehow get that onto a server for for debugging purposes so that you can, or bounce, you know, somehow get that to you for logging. And you're going to be doing printf debugging. You know, this is like, we're not going to have interactive mm-hmm. debuggers mm-hmm. going on here. You're going to be doing printf style debugging with log files. So, once you have the log file feedback loop working, Here's how to increase the speed of the deployment cycle. Never build and run on the watch. If you build and run the phone app for like onto your phone, you will see if you go to the honeycomb screen on your watch, when you hit build and run, the second it launches on the phone, you can see the spinner start on the on the like, like, like you know the pie slice progress bar. You can see that starting on your watch icon. Yep, yep, yep. As soon as you deploy to the phone, it the phone pushes the update to the watch, and that happens way faster and more reliably than building and running directly onto the watch from Xcode. So you have a fast feedback loop with logs. That's your fast feedback loop for code changes. Just build and run on the phone and watch the watch update, and you'll see it's fast. 
and that's it. And and it sucks that like I wish we had better development tools. I wish the tools we had actually worked, and I wish the people at Apple used them the way we have to, or gave us an option not to. Um, that being said, WatchOS continues to feel like it has a staff of like one intern total that has a, you know permission to work on it part time. Brutal. So like, brutal. It, well, look, I mean, look, look at how how much changes in WatchOS every year. Like it's not, it's not it's not a lot. You know, it it doesn't seem like they have a lot of resources over there uh allocated to the watch os development cycle and so maybe we don't want the watch os team to have their jobs be made harder <laughs> but but you know ultimately it does suck that that the job that we are trying to do making apps for this platform is made so much harder by the lack of of reliable and good development tools and workflows and but that's the reality of it there's not much you can do about it so the other thing i will suggest regarding your data transfer issue now, this is a little sensitive because health data is sensitive. I, I was just thinking, I, I don't know what you're going to say it, but I was just thinking earlier that if you could just get that healthcare data and like shove it up on a server somewhere and then pull it over the internet back to the phone. But I was like, Bob, that's healthcare data. You can't really do that. So I hope that's not what you're going to suggest. Yeah. Well, but but what you might be able to do is use CloudKit. <laughs> it's funny you bring this up because I had this exact same thought. The problem I have with that, though, is that... I don't know for absolute certainty that your watch has internet connectivity, right? Or maybe I do and I don't realize it. Oh, that's its own whole ball of worms. So that's the thing is if I I rely on the internet to transfer data, then I I think I'm creating a different set of problems for at least for myself slash a potentially large subset of my maybe customers if I ever get this thing out the door in that, you know, not everyone will always have a reliable internet connection and this data could change as as often as, you know, every 10, 20 minutes. And so I, it seems like that may not be the best answer, but at the rate I'm going, it's the answer I'm going to have to choose to take because I can't get any other freaking thing to work. Yeah, I mean, you could also end up doing both. Like one thing you could do is like have the phone package up the last X days of data as like blobs of data. Have the phone try to send it to the watch with like a blob ID on each one. And then also add those to CloudKit and have the watch attempt to, to sync with CloudKit and just try to get the same IDs. And, you know, if it already has an ID from one of the other sources, it'll it'll ignore it, you know, and just do. I mean, this is terrible. Like, you shouldn't need to do any of this garbage. But people who have remotely functional watch apps do crap like this. This is what we have to do. Like, there's, it's full of bad hacks, redundancy weird ways to try to just brute force stuff through because it's it's such a a punishing and unreliable environment otherwise that's what you got to do yeah it's funny you bring that up so i wrote a front end which i actually am kind of proud of even though i'm sure it's technically incorrect but i I wrote a front end to watch connectivity that basically anything you want to send it will send in all three of the different ways you can send it because that's the only way i can reliably assure well semi ensure it will be there so like well i forget what it is off the top of my head because i haven't looked at this code in a couple of weeks but it's like there's uh, immediate messages which you can even have replies to but that only works when both the watch app and the ios app are are running simultaneously. If I, I think I have that right, I might have that slightly wrong. No, it's it's not quite. the The watch app is able to wake up the phone app, but not vice versa. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yep. 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 So you can have like immediate messages. Um, you can have uh, what is it like user info updates, and then there's like some other. Yeah, the application context, which is like yeah, the, yeah. That's 
it, <laughs> it's, what, another thing I can recommend, any message you get from one of those, like if like the application context, save that in a file. <laughs> that way, next time your application launches, if you don't, if you can't get a new one, use that. Yeah. Second thing I can recommend: put a date object or a sequence I did. number. Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, either yeah, either a date or, or or a sequence number in each one of those dictionaries because yep. the system will occasionally deliver them to you out of order or deliver you stale data. So you, you have to be able to reject stale data as it comes in. <laughs> oh, it's it's, you're basically re-implementing TCP/IP. Like it's so bad. right. <laughs> It's so, so terrible. So, so yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm going to be going away somewhat soon, and I'm going to be stepping away from all this for a few days. And I suspect when I come back, I'm either going to abandon this whole damn project or maybe hopefully have a renewed vigor in order to get through all these problems. But it's funny because a lot of times, especially it's, it's happened a lot to me in the last year or two. It kind of went away for a long time, but it's starting to come back. I'll have friends that are not technical who will say to me, Hey man, I really want to make this app that does this. How long do you think it would take? And admittedly, there's a lot of other problems with goaltender. Like I, I, I started it at a time when I had no motivation. I wasn't doing a good job of getting work done, et cetera, et cetera. But like all those caveats aside, you could use goaltender to motivate you to finish goaltender. <laughs> that's true. Uh, except that's not exactly the kind of goals it's tending. But nevertheless, <laughs> you write the app, you can make it ten different goals. <laughs> also true. Well, that's also true. Um, but. But, you know, I, I look at Goaltender, which is, I, I don't remember exactly when I started it. I'm too lazy to look up the Git commit history, but it's been months and months. And it's an app that's two views. And then I'll have people come to me and be like, hey, I want to automate this incredibly complicated process that involves lots of real world physical objects. That, that can be done in a couple of months, right? And I'm like, <laughs> dude, that's, that's a million bucks in two years for 10 people. And, they, and they'll look at me like, What? It's like, yes, you don't even know. Like it's, this is why software is expensive. Partly because not a damn one of us knows what I'm, what we're doing, but partly because it is that complicated. It, it's a lot easier to mess up. It's a lot easier to reset than say civil engineering when something goes wrong, but it is incredibly complicated. And, and if there's anything we do as a, as a profession is we insist on making things more complicated with each passing year. So I'm I'm sorry for venting. I appreciate you letting me vent, but it is just it is soul sucking, and it is at the point that I'm really strongly thinking that maybe I should just abandon this whole idea and just try something new. Well, I mean, on that front too, like there's, there, you know, you can see both ways of this. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier, like because you're not super dependent on the income from this app. You can't abandon it. You have that freedom. You're a person. You're an adult. You can make your own decisions like this. You can just say, you know what? This is not working. This is not worth it. I don't have... I, I can abandon it. You can also not abandon it, but not release it. You can just use it for yourself. Like, I never... I'm not going to release Duck. I use it. It serves a purpose. <laughs> it's not the only app I have like that. Like, that, I have I have my coffee ratio app. Um, I have Town Painter. Uh, my my app about tracking my walks on on the map of Fire mm-hmm, Island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I actually just rebooted that uh, as a as a running map for me this summer. I'm not going to release that because it's an app that really needs a watch version to be useful to the public. And I wrote it when I was not wearing an Apple Watch, and so I wrote it to like start a workout and be a walking workout from your phone, like entirely on your phone. There is no watch app for this workout tracking. <laughs> map app like it it screams for a watch app and i'm not going to make one because it's not it's not worth me taking that time right now 
and I'm not motivated to, and I hate the watch, <laughs> like for software development. So, yep. uh, so I'm not going to do that. Um, so I'm just not going to release this app. Like it's not worth releasing. The other thing is you can release it and not have some of these features and just say, you know what, here's, here's what it is. If it's useful to you, great. If it's not, oh, well, like, you know, not every app has to like, you know, you, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to say like, all right, well, obviously this needs a watch app. Well, does it? It might not. Um, <laughs> obviously, this needs to be a widget. Does it need to be a widget? Maybe. I mean, that might be nice, but is that required, or it has to be non-existent or dead? Like, it's like this. You know, this is a you know two extremes here. There's a lot of middle ground that you could pick, and the world won't end. And it, you know, it might not appeal to everyone. Some people might write to you saying, "Why doesn't it have this feature?" Or, I, "I'm going to you know withhold my stars or my purchase until you add this feature." Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You you don't have to add it. You don't have to please all those people. You can have an app that's really good for your need, and it might not ever be useful to anybody else. But you can still release it and just see. And it, you know, maybe somebody will find it useful. Um, but you don't have to put all that pressure on yourself that it has to have every single little tiny thing. Um, but moreover, you don't have to work on something that you don't want to work on. If you want this app to exist badly enough for your own purposes, for your own satisfaction, get it to where you want to get it and release it, or don't, <laughs> like, and just use it for yourself <laughs> for forever, like I do with all my with my yeah, my yeah. little garbage apps, you know. That but yours is better than that. But um, your your app is way nicer than Duck, by the way. <laughs> um, but oh, <laughs> but uh, it's also way nicer than Town Painter. Yeah, I think you know, hearing you talk about it and thinking about it, I think if I were to go middle ground, which I, at first, when I started thinking about it, I was like, "No, I don't want that." But the more I'm, the more I'm talking to myself and listening to you, uh, the more I think, "Well, maybe there's something for this to be said for this." The, I think the middle of the ground is no watch anything. So I think you know the iOS app is is done for the meaty things like IAP. I haven't touched in a couple other things I haven't touched, but the the main the main meat of the iOS app is done, and I think I can get widgets done pretty quickly. And I think that's manageable because I'm not relying on all these things that are making me miserable. And so I think that the the halfway solution to this is to release it as an iOS-only app, no watch support of any sort. Then I think the next step would be see if I can get the watch app, so the watch version of the iOS app working. If I can get that working, then maybe I'll go and, and bite, try to bite off complications again. But there, are, there is some middle of the road here. Right now, I'm just so miserable about it that I need to step away and reevaluate. But it, if, you, if you, the listener, have ever used a watch app that worked for more than five minutes, you should have paid $11 million for that app <laughs> because that is the pain that the developer or developers have been through in order to make that app work. Yeah. And this is why like, I don't offer a complication for Overcast that serves any kind of useful function. Uh, the only complications I have are either the icon that you tap it and it launches the app because that works every time. Or <laughs> I have a complication called Overcast Date that works only for the solar face and I think one or two others that you can replace the date on those faces, like the, the day and date, like, you know, wed 12. Mm-hmm. You can replace that with my complication that does the exact same thing, but launches overcast also for faces that have very few complication slots and you want one that launches overcast. Right, right, right. That's it. And I currently, on my own personal watch, I have uh, my own complication called overcast solar, that replicates the the path of the solar, like the like the shape of the solar face, but like with like a line art style, so I can use it on my uh, infograph modular face in the big center slot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking of maybe maybe launching that at some point, but that's it's all can of worms that requires location t- to be able to show your sunset times. Uh, right, so I'm right, probably right, right. I'm probably never going to actually do that. But uh, but like my complications are that simple and useless because making something useful is nearly impossible as a complication that works reliably. Um, it, 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 I don't even I, right currently I use no third-party complications on my watch except for the little overcast you know throwaway ones because even things like weather and even like like carrot weather carrot weather is the best apple watch app i've ever seen and it is as far as i can tell it is like the best watch app that somebody could make as a weather app carrot weather does everything it can do to be a reliable consistent full-featured watch app with complications and even it, occasionally, I've had, like, I've caught it showing stale data. And I'm not blaming the developer. He did everything he could possibly do. Complications are buggy. And only Apple's complications seem to be exempt from certain system bugs and system thresholds of, like, refresh intervals and stuff like that. Only Apple's complications work reliably. No one else's do. Even my simple one, my overcast date, that literally generates a timeline into the future as far as Apple requests, because all I'm doing is showing the day and date. <laughs> so it's, it takes no memory. It takes no CPU time. It runs into no limits. Even that is buggy sometimes. Even that will like refuse to update, which is really a great, it's a hilarious thing when you wake up in the morning and it says it's Wednesday and it's actually Thursday. That's, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> and so like, if, if even that, if even watchOS won't even let me get that reliably showing, Nothing else stands a chance. And, and yep. so complications on the watch that are not made by Apple are always going to be inherently buggy and limited. And there's always going to be a risk that they're going to be showing out-of-date data and you won't realize it. And that basically invalidates the value of lots of complication <laughs> possibilities. Yep. And so it's better to just avoid relying on them at all. Yep. And that in, in this case for Goaltender... I'm in a situation where I'm relying on health data, and so I cannot predict the future with any sort of reliability. And complications are really, really made, or the API is really centered around the idea of you being able to predict at least a little while into the future. Like, it does support, say, weather or, or something like that, where you're a stock ticker, for example, where you, you cannot know what the future will bring. But it's very clear that Apple really wants you to try to predict in the future as far as possible because they the watch legitimately is constrained and they constrain third parties on the watch extremely aggressively. So I, I do to some degree understand where Apple's coming from, but I am, again, painting myself into like the corner of a corner of a corner of a corner because now I'm relying on watch connectivity for data that's in HealthKit that that I can't predict into the future and I only have 10 days of it, you know, in the watch. It's just, a, it's a mess. So I, I, I need to wrap it up, but it, it's, been, it's been very challenging and I would really, really love for this to get better in the future. I think what you should do, besides obviously take a break and, you know, regroup and decide how and if you want to proceed with this one thing that might be a fun like palette cleanser here to kind of get you back into thinking you're a software developer again (laughs) is if you have any other ideas for some really stupid simple little throwaway thing that was goaltender for god's sakes but yes i hear you i hear you work on something work on some other app that is simpler like 
just mm-hmm. any any other idea you've been working on or thinking about anything a, a, like a single screen app but just not one that involves these tar pits of despair like the like the watch <laughs> right like if you can avoid like just something that's like a simple like fun swift ui thing using your prescription swift or combine or whatever with like a, a single iphone view that's going to be great like it's a fun little like developer palette cleanser something like that can can really kickstart motivation like when, whenever i'm in like a, a, a pit of despair with whatever i'm working on having a little distraction that i work on for like two or three days it usually really kicks me into high gear again and, and it's like a nice break and and it, it, it i find it helps a lot with motivation and self-esteem and psyche and everything else yeah i'll probably do exactly that 